Hey everybody, welcome back to A Flare for the Curious. I'm Anthony J. Swindell, and on today's episode of the podcast, you'll hear John Fries and I discuss an academic article he recently published titled The Dependent Origination of Whiteness. The article explores racial formation and, through the Buddhist lens of causality, how the identification with whiteness is perpetuated. In the paper, connections to clinical trauma therapy are included to ground the discussion in a secular, empirical, and trauma-informed context. You're invited to read the paper, and links are in the notes to this show, but if all that sounds too heady, I think we do a great job of taking these serious topics of social justice, race relations, and mental health and psychology, and we have a fun, upbeat, and enjoyably informative conversation about them that's easy to follow along, and I think it's digestible. The discussion we have is meaningful, and a lot of great points and topics are brought up that are relevant during these trying times of social inequity and racial hostility. I'm really glad to be able to share this with all of you. John Fries is the co-host, along with Nick Meinhardt, of the Down with the Dharma podcast. And although Nick won't be joining us today, this episode is going to be released on both Down with the Dharma and here on A Flare for the Curious. I encourage you to check out Down with the Dharma podcast, which aims to bring the teachings of Dharma down to earth and make them applicable to our everyday lives. I've certainly enjoyed listening along, so I definitely recommend you go have a listen yourself. John or Professor Fries, as I call him on campus, teaches several courses at University of the West in Rosemead, California, uh, including contemplative practice, Buddhist social ethics, service learning, and religion. I also took an independent study class with him on Eastern philosophy that was really helpful for me to make sense of so many overlapping ideas and traditions that I had encountered, uh, as John draws on many years of practice, travel, and study. For instance, in addition to practicing in South India in the tradition of Ramana Maharshi, John trained as a Buddhist monk for 12 years, including six with Thich Nhat Hanh. He is also currently a lay member of Thich Nhat Hanh's Order of Interbeing. John also holds a Master's of Divinity in Buddhist Chaplaincy from the University of the West and is currently working on his PhD at Claremont School of Theology, where his research and clinical training are focused on developing a Buddhist model of pastoral care and counseling. John has taught Buddhism and meditation in prisons in the past, uh, is a co-founder of the Engaged Buddhist Alliance that continues those efforts today, and he currently works with formerly incarcerated people who are getting back to civilian life. I want to bring up a few points before we begin. Um, a correction, an addition, and a comment, really. Uh, firstly, a correction. Uh, John had noted that at one point in our discussion, he mentions the Black Panthers, but he was actually referring to the Muslim Brotherhood. The addition is that we wanted to add to the Buddhist Peace Fellowship that we had mentioned and include and give a shout out to other engaged Buddhists and engaged Buddhist groups like Lama Rod, who was recently interviewed on the Down with the Dharma podcast, Angel Kyoto Williams, Anne Glegg, and the East Bay Meditation Center, to name a few. If you're interested in getting involved or learning more, uh, there are definitely some great examples out there of how to practice Dharma while engaging with uh, some of these difficult issues. Links to some of the names mentioned, as well as uh, the Dependent Origination of Whiteness journal article and the Down with the Dharma podcast are in the show notes to this episode, so please do go check those out. Before we jump in, I invite you to please subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast. Your support goes a long way, and I'd like to thank everyone who has been listening and contributing so far. It's been really awesome and rewarding uh, for me personally to hear how people have been finding so much value in the discussions that we're having. If you haven't already, I encourage you to go check out some of our past episodes, catch up, and get on board. Go to aflareforthecurious.com or explore more episodes wherever you listen. And if you'd like to follow along on social media, I'm on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash aflareforthecurious, on Instagram at Anthony J. Swindell, 
on Twitter at Tony J. Swindell. And as always, you're invited to email me directly at aflareforthecurious at gmail.com. All right, my friends, the time has come. Let's take a conscious breath together before we get started. So exhale completely and go ahead and inhale slowly and deeply. Hold it for a second and gently release. I hope you all dig this conversation I had with John Freeze. And the shuttle has cleared the tower. Hi, my name is Anthony Swindell, and I'm host of A Flare for the Curious. And I'm John Freeze. I'm one of the co-hosts of Down with the Dharma podcast. And we've got a special episode for you today. We're doing a little bit of cross-pollination. We're going to be publishing this uh, podcast on both podcasts, so we'll be chit-chatting today about uh, John's recently published paper, The Dependent Origination of Whiteness. So yeah, that's a paper that got published in December in this ethnic studies journal called CalFu that's edited by George Lipschitz, who's one of the main forerunners of critical race theory. And so basically I'm, I'm analyzing white supremacy from a Buddhist perspective and yeah that as the people from my podcast know what we're interested in with down with the dharma is engaged buddhism social justice the crossover between contemplative practice and awareness that comes from that and uh social justice issues collective issues as well yeah so um i really i i really enjoyed the first couple episodes of your podcast down with the dharma so uh um you did an episode zero where you introduced yourself and uh your co-host and um i thought it was a wonderful way to to get into your background i know i've asked a lot of the questions that you answered in our personal time together about about your Mm -hmm. background as uh time as a a Buddhist monk in Thich Nhat Hanh's order, as well as your time in India. Um, I like that you guys talked about Ramdas. <laughs> mm-hmm. mm-hmm. um, so yeah, for anybody who's who's listening to get more of a background on on you, John, yeah. uh, I would definitely recommend checking out your episode zero. And I feel like uh, it <laughs> for people who listen to my podcast, it's also thoroughly informative for some of the things I'm interested in. You guys really addressed a mm-hmm. lot of uh, Buddhist topics, um, spiritual progression, how you guys came into it, and like I said, you talked about Ramdas a lot, which is dear to my heart and a, possibly a big part of why I have this podcast. Mm. Uh, some of my favorite podcasters mm-hmm. uh, who are comedians or just personalities, kind of seemingly yeah. down-to-earth guys, like I eventually came to find out that they were all part of Neem Karoli Baba Satsang and wow. Ramdas Satsang, and huh. they all hang out in Hawaii for the retreats and stuff. And uh. I was like, oh, man. like Yeah, so podcasts have really given me a sense of uh, community when I mm. I didn't have a sangha and yeah. like-minded people to hang out with. I, I was mm-hmm. able to find that community through podcasts. And so yeah. this this common thread of Ramdas uh, seems, yeah. to, seems to weave its way through a variety of traditions. And I don't know if I mentioned in episode zero, but I met him in Boulder uh, like in the early 90s. And I mean, reading his book, Be Here Now, had a big influence on me when I was in college. Uh, and then when I actually met him, that was also, it was like a powerful experience. So uh, I haven't interacted with him recently. My co-host Nick is the one who's now he's he's spent time with him in Hawaii and cool. Um, but yeah, Ram, yeah, you can't get what you can't get away from him. He's yeah. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, and then they just um, they just finished the. The Mandir in Taos, the Hanuman Mandir. So he actually left the island to oh wow to check it out. I know he's he's just been staying there, but oh wow, okay. 
Uh, yeah, I, I, I've been spending a lot of time in New Mexico since I was a kid. Oh, wow. And But I only went to the Hanuman Temple for the first time like a couple of years ago. Yeah. And nice. uh, there's a, one of our fellow students at U.S. Brock. I forget his last name, but he's he's gone and done a retreat there as well, yeah. Nice. Yeah. Um, yeah, so we know each other uh, through you, West. So um, mm-hmm. I'm just going to read your bio real quick. You, di- you didn't really talk about it uh, exactly what you, you're doing right now. Yeah. <laughs> you gave more of your background on your previous sure. podcast, so maybe it'll be uh, inf- interesting for your listeners too. Um, but on your paper, you list that you're a doctoral student at the Claremont School of Theology, where your research and clinical training are focused on developing a Buddhist model of pastoral care and counseling. And you are an adjunct professor at University of the West, which is where I know you from. Uh, where you teach classes on contemplative practice, Buddhist social ethics, service learning, and religion. So I didn't take your religion course, but I've taken all of your other courses. And your service learning was really cool. Uh, You're helping students to do community service and teaching about the the divine abodes of Buddhism. Mm -hmm. We learned a lot about uh, uh, incarcerated peoples. Um, That was an option for people to go. So I really enjoyed that class. I also took your meditation class, mm-hmm. and then we did a little bit of independent study on Eastern philosophy afterwards, which was really helpful for me to understand the overlap of a lot of Buddhist and Hindu terminology and concepts mm-hmm. and practice. Uh, so I, I yeah. definitely really enjoyed that. Uh, but possibly most applicable to the conversation we're going to be having today is the Buddhist social ethics class, where right. we tackled a variety of um, social justice topics and then looked at them through the lens of dependent origination which is yeah. what we're going to get into today yeah that was a really cool class it really turned me on to like the authors that we covered in there uh, like naomi mm-hmm. campbell and uh, uh, naomi klein Ni- naomi klein sorry yeah. <laughs> naomi sure. klein michelle mm-hmm. alexander um mm-hmm. which her work is uh really relevant to today mm-hmm. to to the, what your paper's mm-hmm. about and the continuation of racism today through prison industrial complex and and institutionalized yeah. racism that is an extension of of slavery. So, uh, I really yeah. ap- appreciated having that progressive outlook brought into the classroom. Mm-hmm. I, I think yeah. that, uh, school is a, a wonderful place for people to, to get turned on to those kind of ideas. And I would definitely mm-hmm. like to see more of that in the class. Yeah. 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 Um, so, uh, your podcast down with the Dharma, uh, before we jump into your paper, I just kind of mm-hmm. want to talk about that, yeah, uh, that sure, a little bit. Sure, sure. Like, so you, you said in, in your, your episode zero talking about it, uh, the idea of being down is the, the koan for the show. Right. And so, uh, like a koan is, I guess, kind of like a, a riddle that is not meant mm-hmm. to be answered. That's kind of mm-hmm. makes you think mm-hmm. and makes you kind of sit with the paradox more than anything. Yeah. And so what does it mean to be down? And you had mentioned Thich Nhat Hanh said, we have to get down to the practice. Mm-hmm. But you're also right. concerned with bringing the practice down to earth and down from the upper echelons of society where only mm-hmm. people who can afford expensive retreats are able to practice. Yeah. Um, so I, I got what you meant conceptually. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. then when you launched your first episode, I mm-hmm. got it in a much more concrete way. Yeah. Because uh, dick control. Yeah. You're getting right down to the nitty gritty. You're not. Yeah. You're taking it out of mm-hmm. the temple, out mm-hmm. of the monastery, <laughs> right. talking about <laughs> real issues that we all need to deal with. Using uh, the hilarious Eddie Murphy as yeah. as the the jumping off point, and, and right. using his his skit about dick control. Yeah. Uh, I don't. Know, you, you want to talk a little bit about about bringing sure. bringing the practice down to earth? So. Yeah. So I started meditating when I was in college, Vassar College in Poughkeepsie, New York, and then at the same time I was. Uh, doing body-centered trauma therapy. Um, I was, yeah, I was working with a therapist in Boulder because my brother was in Boulder. 
Um, and then I was also learning how to play West African drums. And um, so, and so, so I learned how to do meditation at Zen Mountain Monastery. And the practice there is that you count the breath while you focus on the hara. And the hara is a point like a couple inches below the belly button, a couple inches inside. And the idea is like the breath is a rhythm and you're feeling the beat of the rhythm there in the belly. And then you're counting the breath in time with that beat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then my drum teacher, when he was teaching me to play West African drums, he was like, focus in your belly, feel the rhythm in your belly. Yeah. And so it's like, you know, where do you feel the downbeat? Where do you feel the one? It's like you feel it down in the belly, right? Yeah. And so my experience then of meditation and drumming overlapped with each other. So I had the feeling when I was meditating that I was playing drums. Or when I was playing drums, I had the feeling I was meditating. Hmm. And so there was this feeling of getting down into my belly, uh, being able to step back from the conceptual mind and identifying with thought pattern and conceptual mind and dropping into a more intuitive like embodied awareness um so that was like when you think when you think of uh music and people say get down it's like that means like you have to feel the beat you have to feel the rhythm you have to be in the groove right yeah so that feeling is the same for me like in terms of meditation you have to get down to be really present and meditating <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah uh and so then, then of course, there's a, a whole other level of connotation around um, African-American wisdom about is somebody down or not? Yeah. Like, meaning, are you part of the problem, like part of the settler colonialism, extractivism, racism, white supremacy? Um are you like to use a reggae term? Are you like the down presser, meaning mm. pushing people yeah. down, or are you down, meaning are you down with the common person, the average person? Um, are you aware of the suffering that's going on, like for people that are not in a place of privilege? If you're like one of the target groups, yeah. So then that to me is another meaning of what does it mean to be down so for me like i'm coming from like a hell of a lot of privilege like i'm like white straight male um affluent uh in texas republican deal so um like i'm I've, i've been on this like path of trying to decondition myself from all of that and to get down and that's a whole process uh that i'm still (laughs) working on yeah i I like that you talked about uh you know you were a nice white liberal Mm -hmm. and through a partner you had you learned to be be an embodied anti-racist yeah i learned to tell the difference like like when i went to vassar i would say that's when i became white liberal right like in my mind conceptually i was anti-racist i was for equality of all kinds you know yeah um but that's different from having an embodied experience of what the suffering is for people of color and like is your behavior really supporting liberation of people of color and other target groups or is your behavior still part of the structural system that's causing the oppression 
Yeah. And so for me, that's also then where this whole notion of trauma comes in because I think, uh, well, these uh, two psychotherapists from Pacifica College, which is in Santa Barbara, so um, um, Helene Schulman and I want to say Marie Watkins, something Watkins. So they wrote a book called Towards Liberation Psychologies, and okay. they talked about different kinds of historical trauma. Like you can have the victim trauma, you can have bystander trauma, and you can have perpetrator trauma. Yeah. Meaning you're involved in some experience of violence or exploitation, and as a result, you're traumatized from that. Mm-hmm. And so... To me, then, one of the big uh, processes of of getting down means getting in touch with historical trauma. And because the way I understand trauma is coming from this body-centered somatic approach, which overlaps a big a big amount with my Buddhist practice. Yeah. You that, talk about that a bit in your paper, yeah. too. I really like to, to yeah. see those concrete overlaps. That getting down means getting in touch with your body and what the memory your body is holding, mm-hmm. right? And so that's individual and collective. Um, so I feel like to go from white liberal to embodied anti-racist means you have to get in touch with your body as an individual, but also your body as part of a collective system. Yeah. And that's uh, not easy to do. Yeah, it's... Uh, uh, intense stuff comes up that you have to deal with. Um, so when Thich Nhat Hanh, he was giving a Dharma talk and he was saying uh, you have to get down to the practice. And so he he wasn't consciously making the association with the African-American term what it means to get down. Yeah. But what he did mean was you have to not just think about it or read about it or uh, conceptualize about it. You actually have to. Yeah, so do that's, the that's something else that you me- that you mentioned in your introductory <laughs> episode. So uh-huh. the the tail end of your bio is that you trained as a Buddhist monk for twelve years, including mm-hmm. six with Thich Nhat Hanh, uh, mm-hmm. and that you're currently a lay member of the Order of Interbeing. So you talked about your background and how you got into spirituality, and you you had met some mm-hmm. saints, and you saw there was something really to it, and you thought that there was a an actual path for this becoming yeah. a career through Thich Nhat Hanh's order. But that he's not just into the meditating. He's socially engaged. He's quite the activist. He did a lot of work with Martin Luther King, and he was uh, active against the war in Vietnam and, again, in in the 90s and 2000s. Uh, So you kind of were were brought back into the social engagement. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, So he's considered one of the main four. I don't know. There's a whole history of engaged Buddhism, but I guess you could just say he's one of the main voices of engaged Buddhism. Mm-hmm. And so, coming from his experience of the war in Vietnam, where he was speaking out against the war, he was meeting with Martin Luther King in Chicago in the 60s. Yeah. Um, so, they were both putting their bodies on the line uh, to call out against... I mean, it's, his take on it isn't... I mean, he he was calling out against the war which has within it an implicit critique of colonialism. Mm -hmm. But in a way, he kind of doesn't 
address it head on in the same way that, like, say, Martin Luther King addressed it. Okay. Uh, and I think that's a very interesting nuance, right, in and of itself. Um, so recognizing social injustice and doing something about it um, as a Buddhist, but then there's this fine line of, like, how political do you get? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like that uh, that's one thing I'm interested in is like you think of like Martin Luther King as coming from the black church um or you think of like Anthony uh is it Anthony Barber who's the guy that does the moral Mondays in North know. Carolina he's this African American minister and so know. they're openly political talking about who you should vote for who you shouldn't vote for yeah things like that whereas Thich Nhat Hanh will that tradition will hold back from that. Okay. Uh, interesting. So there's an interesting tension there. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm kind of wanting to push that further, right? Like, like what would what would Buddhist socialism look like? You know, or if 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 Buddhists were openly for the Green New Deal, for Bernie Sanders, for Social Democrats of America, some of whom are. Yeah. Um, yeah. How does that relate to Buddhism and Buddhist practice? Yeah. Buddhism is so tricky, though, because it's interpreted so variously. Yeah. And I think some people are trying to not cause suffering on any level. Right. Whereas, you know, it's also, I think, about skillful means, which, yeah. well, you know, you're going to save some, which have to cause harm to others. And, yeah. and it just seems to be interpreted so differently. It, it yeah. seems hard to get everybody on the same page. Yeah, I think you could make the case that for, in, in a lot of ways, Buddhism's been on the bench as far as mm. social justice for its overall history because it's more about this practice of seclusion and uh, attaining nirvana mm. and leaving the world behind, in a sense. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, there is the Bodhisattva ideal uh, where you want to embrace everyone's suffering and help them reach nirvana, but that's not the same as talking about who should be king or not king and uh yeah <laughs> that kind of thing. historically i guess it was a rejection of that whole system so it makes sense that it's a little touchy to re-engage with it <laughs> right so we're kind of i mean i'm of course there's examples like the sarvadaya movement in sri lanka or sulakshiva raksha in thailand or i mean there's a full engaged buddhism movement that did yeah. come about in the 20th century as a response to colonialism um but i feel like there's still layers of that that can be unpacked or there's thresholds still that can be crossed over that hasn't been done yet or it's or it's just beginning yeah do you mm. I, it looks like it's definitely kindling and getting bigger like whether yeah. it's the zen peacemakers or yeah. um, like we talked a lot about david loy and uh environmentalism mm. and yeah so it seems like there there is a conting- right. contingency a of Buddhist Buddhist. fellowship yeah mm-hmm. yeah yeah do you think it's it's picking up pace um especially with the, the whole climate coming to a is well, that's coming to a head. Yeah, I think there's a couple of things. I think one is more people of color are getting into Buddhism. Yeah, uh, more people uh, who are not part of the the upper middle. Uh, like some people refer to Buddhism like the upper middle way. Like like uh, it's for rich white people that have time <laughs> to meditate. Yeah. Uh, so I think it's getting younger. It's getting more diverse. It's getting more diverse in terms of class, race, gender, mm-hmm. things like that. Um, and, yeah, we are now reaching this collective crisis 
where everybody has to get involved. You can't, you can't not get involved. Um, yeah. And at least in the area I'm interested in working at, the, the, the crossover between trauma therapy and Buddhism is so um, substantial that for me, like the way of understanding what's going on in terms of the social, in terms of the crisis we're in, or in terms of what are the mechanics of white supremacy, mm-hmm. that, yeah, that this coming together of Buddhism and trauma therapy, I think, is a big way to understand what's happening and, and possibly make a difference. Yeah. Uh, what is your, your doctoral studies focusing on? What are your, what are, do you have your so, dissertation yes. lined up? Um, yes, I'm, I'm, I'm just now entering the writing phase of it. Uh, so I interviewed six psychotherapists who are in the Thich Nhat Hanh tradition. Oh, wow. And I asked them how did they integrate Buddhism and trauma therapy together. Nice. And so the idea is trauma therapy and Buddhism both have theories and practices on how to deal with suffering or trauma. Mm -hmm. And um, to me, there's a lot of overlap in both of them. Um, And so, yeah, how could Buddhism be used more directly to heal trauma? And then how could trauma therapy um, benefit from Buddhism because if you think of Buddhist practice done as a community done on large scale, like with retreats, um, if because trauma therapy, usually you think it's like one-on-one therapy, you a therapist and a client, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. or maybe a small group, right? Yeah. Whereas Buddhism, you can, you can scale it up to large groups. Oh, that makes so much sense because then, then you, can, <laughs> right. you, can, you can heal our communities in a different way. Right. It gives us opportunity for individual and communal healing and growth. Right. Wow. Right. Yeah. yeah. That's wonderful. That's powerful. Yeah. Which like is that. a lot of what Thich Nhat Hanh has been doing. Mm. Um, and so I think bringing in the specifics of somatic trauma therapy into how Thich Nhat Hanh is teaching and how other teachers are teaching, I think, um, can help clarify intense levels of suffering and uh, provide ways of dealing with it that um, hasn't hasn't been done before. Yeah. yeah. How did your time uh, as a monastic with Thich Nhat Hanh inform the work that you're doing now? Yeah. Um, so, so when I was in college, I was doing... I was working with a therapist named Stephanie Mines who she trained under Peter Levine who does somatic experiencing so that was um, a big chunk of the therapy we were doing was somatic experiencing and then when I became a monk with Thich Nhat Hanh he was teaching the four foundations of mindfulness which for me felt a lot of what somatic experiencing felt like like mm-hmm. very similar in terms of what your actual experience is um, and so So right at the beginning, it felt like, oh, I'm, this is the same fundamental process, like healing yeah. from trauma and um, engaging in meditation to heal from suffering. It's it's the same essential process. Yeah, bringing it down into the body. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, I like this running theme. So then I think what 
one of the big influences from Thich Nhat Hanh is you know, making meditation become a way of life. Um, and then this idea then also of getting in touch with your experience directly, your experience of your body and your emotions and your mind. And okay, the, there's a big part of it is dealing with whatever suffering you have coming up and, mm-hmm. and embracing that and, and transforming that. Um, but if you keep working that process further and further, it's like by getting in touch with your body, you go deeper than your body to this experience of interbeing, which is beyond your individual body. So it opens up into an experience of transcending your individual body, but not like a dissociated transcendence. Mm-hmm. It's like you're getting more in touch with your body, which is opening you, opening you up more to this transpersonal experience of reality. Yeah. And so he is someone who, he doesn't say what level of awakening he's reached, but when you're in his presence, you feel this guy's got something going on. Like, I mean, even through like a TV screen or a book, I get that sensation. So I, I haven't had the, the fortunate experience of being in his physical presence, but I, I, get, right. I get that vibe even from engaging with his texts. Right. So this whole awakening a realized master, however way we want to define what realization is, like um, being around someone who has reached a deep level of awakening, it's like, oh, like it makes you relate to reality in a completely different way. It's like, oh, there's this whole deeper level that it's possible to get in touch with. And that deeper level reveals like a deeper, more subtle level of suffering within you that you didn't even know you had Mm. or or maybe you were maybe you like for me i had this like existential angst you know Mm -hmm. like fear of annihilation fear of death yeah crisis um and then when you're around somebody like him it's like this feeling of oh there's like a practice and a way where this can get resolved Mm -hmm. like that deep crisis can be fully transformed Mm. um so just being around that and it's just it's like you it's like obviously i'm not fully awakened so i can't say (laughs) from direct experience but it's like there's an intuitive feeling that this is possible Mm -hmm. like and surely you've uh had tremendous benefits from it you've told me about right (laughs) left and right right yeah that just being around somebody like that yeah that hell it it yeah, it, it propels your practice in a much deeper way. And um, I mean, it's a double-edged sword. It also brings stuff up more uh, at the same time. So it's kind of well, like... Yeah, I mean, you're putting yourself through some pretty extremes. And I mean, you talked about it at length on your other podcasts about, you yeah. know, celibacy as a part of it. And, yeah. you know, you're giving up your possessions. And, and I think you and, right. I, you and I have talked uh, about, you right. know, like you're... You're not in seclusion. You're in a community of other monks, and you're still dealing with yeah. all the same interpersonal yeah. problems that come up and living in yeah. communities. And <laughs> yeah, and yeah, that's that's gotta yeah bring up all of that deep internal stuff. Anytime I've lived in a community, it's brought up yeah. a lot of yeah. issues that I thought were resolved. <laughs> right to work on. So he would make the community be a way of getting your buttons pushed, 
and then okay now you have to practice what was that thing you told me about resolution you said like about every week you guys would have some kind of a group activity where you would work on mm-hmm. talking about some of the issues that were coming up yeah we had it's called beginning anew ah and so it was basically like you could think of it as like um it was it's almost like a restorative justice practice like for to be done within a community so mm. um yeah we would meet together uh once a week the the monastic community and in this case usually it was just the monks meeting with themselves and then the nuns usually lived in another location they would meet in in their own location um and so it had four parts so it was uh watering flowers which means like um expressing gratitude or or okay so so you're sitting like you're sitting in a circle as a group and then if you want to speak you start speaking and then you're talking about another person in the group. And so then you start out with what are positive things about that person that, that you like, you know? Yeah, that's the general process for giving right? crit- green crit- criticism. So you start with a compliment. <laughs> you don't, well, yeah, you, it, it breaks you out of the all or nothing. They're, uh, e- they're 100% evil. They're the yeah. devil kind of thing. It's like, okay, these... I, it's not just for them receiving. It's right. also for, for you, you putting it out there. That makes right. sense. It's, yeah, it's making you break out of the dualistic polarizing way of relating. Yeah. Hmm. So first it's expressing positive things that the person has done either for you in particular, or just positive qualities that they have that you admire, you mm-hmm. know? And then the second one is you express regret, like something you've done where you feel like you've caused them suffering. Okay. And so you're, you're expressing regret and, and depending on the situation that, that, may, that, may, that might be all that you're doing is you, you fucked up and you want to apologize. Yeah. And so this is a space to do that, right? Um, or it may, even, it may be only even be the first step. Like somebody did something that was really cool and you, you, had, you didn't get a chance to point it out until now. So mm-hmm. now's your chance to like say, yeah, that was awesome. Like Best case scenario. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. So first is like, oh, wow, wow, that was awesome. Second, I fucked up and I'm sorry. This is what I did. Okay. And then the third is, oh, you did something that made me suffer. Mm-hmm. And this is like one of the key things is that you're expressing it from a place of vulnerability. It's not from a place of judgment or um, attack or hatred. It's coming from you're coming from an open heart. But I mean, you're also not coming at it from putting yourself down either. But it's like. You're coming from a place of vulnerability, mm-hmm. saying, when you did this, it caused me to suffer. So you're, it's a practice of being in touch with your own suffering and being able to express that suffering mm. yeah. um, in a pure way. That, and that's an art, I think, to learn how to do that. Yeah, that's, that's really important. Yeah. And then the fourth stage would be, and, he, and Thich Nhat Hanh, he kind of would change, he would t- tweak it over time. So... Uh, the fourth step, it depends on which uh, time period you're looking at when he's teaching what, what that fourth okay. step is. But, <laughs> but the way I first learned it and the way I still like to do it, the fourth step is what are the underlying conditions uh, that, have, that are, have an influence on this suffering, right? Okay. So say somebody did something to me... Uh, they said something mean to me and it 
caused me to suffer and then maybe that resembled some experience I had in my childhood where like um, the way my parent abused me or something and so then that deeper level uh, is allowed to be recognized and brought into the space interesting is, so, is somebody mediating this while this all this is going on you have someone that sits at the bell so um, the, this is the kind of one of the genius of Thich Han is he, he's taking traditional meditation practice and forms and then turning them into interpersonal communal practices interesting right yeah so when a normal session of meditation someone's sitting at the bell and they ring it that's the beginning you sit for 30 minutes they ring it again Mm -hmm. okay when you're doing group practice that involves talking to each other you start the session by ringing the bell and following your breathing just getting grounded And then throughout the session, there may be moments where the person who's sitting at the bell feels like, oh, the energy is getting too intense or it's starting to escalate in a way that's beyond what's metabolizing. So we all need to take a chill and like hit the bell. So so that person will hit the bell (laughs) to uh, chill everything out again. Yeah. Wow. Um, And for the most part, that's the only level of intervention that's going on. Um, I can't remember really, I can't remember a specific instance where someone someone else would have to step in to stop something from going on beyond just the bell getting rung. Um, well, at this point, everybody's yeah. a monastic. You've already done some level of training. Yeah. I imagine you all have some level of self-control. <laughs> it should, should be a well, responsible in theory, uh, yeah. level of conversation, <laughs> I, would, I would think. I mean, it, there, no? were t- there were times where it got a little messy and... Yeah shit would spill over but um yeah um for the most part yeah people would respect the form and then yeah 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 but yeah so there's somebody there um to ring the bell if the experience feels like it's getting to where it's going from a a contained experience where you're expressing suffering or you're expressing regret to it escalating into judgment or hatred or um, where someone feels like they're really getting uh, pushed down upon or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, it seems like uh, that could be a really useful technique for groups on any level, families. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and that way, it's, like... It's a process that's like, it seems so powerful. We, every uh, summer, there's we have what's known as like the family retreat at mm-hmm. at his different monasteries. So so it's made for families to come and learn mindfulness practice and be together. And then yeah, there is a um, time for families if they want to to practice beginning anew. And so the monastics will facilitate oh, families cool. doing beginning anew with each other. Yeah, nice. And yeah, that it's really that is some of the more transformative moments yeah during those retreats yeah wow yeah that i wish that i could have had some of that growing up (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah i've listened to some of the dharma talks from some of those family retreats i always Mm -hmm. enjoy when they open up the questions to the the children yeah yeah because the the questions are you know Mm -hmm. out of the mouth of babes and then his answers are are good no matter who he's talking to and so i love i love i loved listening to those when i was yeah really listening to a, a lot of dharma talks back in the day yeah and again, I think that it's one of his 
strong points as well as I mean he's he's in in the world of Buddhism Thich Nhat Hanh and on one level he's seen as someone who's done this amazing work of translating Buddhism into um, U.S. culture in a way that is very accessible mm. um, and then I would add to that that he's he's taken Buddhist practice and made it something that really does happen in the family um, so it's not just about the monk by himself or herself doing meditation in the forest um, it is about like how do you apply this practice in your daily life in your family experience Very practical in yeah so so it it gets into what would normally in our culture be the realm of psychotherapy mm-hmm. yeah and so that's one of the the big contributions he's made is how to apply Buddhism in a context that is very interpersonal and it's dealing with issues around family or community. Um, so I think that that is one of his main contributions. Um, and then there's people that have criticized him for watering watering down the Dharma or or like over focusing on that and then leaving out the whole Nirvana thing. Oh yeah, or or like I don't know, like like making that less of an important thing, hmm. right? Or taking teachings that normally are in this context of like these transpersonal states of consciousness in meditation, and then applying it to like a family situation where someone like a dad like lost it with his kid, you know? So. Uh, I, re- I doubt it's somebody who is fully enlightened doing the criticism, though. So, <laughs> right, right, right. Wow. Um, something else that you that you had said on, on uh, one of your talks uh, is that about so you talked about moving from the heart space. Yeah, and I think that kind of correlates to to bringing mm-hmm. bringing it down mm-hmm. into your body and embodying yeah. it, and yeah. and and the wisdom of the heart. And I was wondering yeah. if you could could talk about that, maybe in the context of uh, Thich Nhat Hanh's teaching and and how that was brought forth in you while you were studying with him. Yeah. Um. So so the Pali word chitta is translated as heart mind. So there is no word in English that it can translate into mm. as one word. Mm-hmm. Um, so sometimes it's translated just as mind, and people will confuse that with conceptual mind. Okay. Um, but uh, heart mind is is the more accurate translation. Now, this is the Buddhist translation of the word chitta. In uh-huh. uh, Hindu tra- uh, translations, mm-hmm. you know, there's a variety of mm-hmm. Hindu traditions, mm-hmm. uh, chitta is usually associated with consciousness. Is this a different... Uh, translation of the word altogether in the Buddhist context? Um, so then, like, depends on which school of Buddhism, like, say, in Mahayana Buddhism, Yogacara, you get you get into the eight consciousnesses. And mm-hmm. um, I think for me, the way, the best way to think about it is the difference between the conceptual mind and the intuitive awareness the experience of intuitive awareness. Okay. Um, or you could say, you know, the experience of the witnessing self or observing self, which is more direct, more immediate, 
uh, and whereas the conceptual mind is is um, like one step behind. You yeah, know, it's like uh, analyzing the actuality right. of what's happening. Right, <laughs> yeah. right, right, right. Um, and so, yeah, in meditation practice, it's like you're you're practicing getting aware of the breathing, and then that helps you make the transition from being caught up in thoughts to so the difference between being aware of a thought versus thinking a thought. Mm-hmm. And so that means you're dropping into this deeper level of awareness that can be aware of a thought as just something that's coming and going in the awareness as opposed to this um, identification with thought as me, who I am, or, yeah. So, so, so dropping down into the heart to me means like that you're letting go of identifying with your conceptual mind and you're dropping down into this deeper experience of just being itself, hmm. which, which, ex, which is experience. I experience that in the heart region when I'm doing meditation. Okay. Um, you can't finally pin it down to a physical location in the heart, but it tends to have a feeling of it's down in the heart. In the chest area, and I know yeah. some the interpretations yeah. of the hridaya that's the heart, yeah. the heart cave, which is to, yeah. the, to the opposite space of the heart, and yeah. just, just this yeah. whole, whole region. And yeah. I know we've talked about it variously. Sometimes yeah. one, a person will have an experience, and it'll get canonized, and that's where you're supposed right. to think it goes. But it, it's more descriptive than prescriptive, and you should really just pay attention to what's arising in you naturally. Right. right. Yeah. Um, and then also I. Even before I became a monk, I got interested in uh, Taoism and internal alchemy, which um, talks about um, sexual energy, breath energy, and then spirit. And then again, that word in Chinese, um, and I'm I'm never I haven't yet fully gotten the pronunciation of this one. I, I think in Japanese I think it's shen, and in Chinese I think it's sen. And it's the same word. It's translated as heart mind. Okay. Um, and so it's the experience of awareness itself being itself. And the way you like, so in this Taoist internal alchemy, they'll, they'll talk about sexual breath and spirit. And, and the idea is you're supposed to conserve the sexual energy. So if you're a monastic on a celibate practice, that means you you keep you don't activate the sexual energy. Yeah. Um, and then that energy uh, gets stored in your body, and then you do work with the breath energy, which is in Sanskrit is prana, in Chinese it's chi, mm-hmm. in Japanese it's ki. So it's connected with the breath, but it's subtle energy. Yeah. So for me, that Japanese Zen practice that I do where I'm counting the breath, focusing on the hara, which is in the belly, that's where chi is getting generated. And so when that chi is getting generated, the ching sublimates into the chi, the ching being the sexual energy. It's not sexual energy like you're not like aroused sexually, but it's that like a passionate urge kind of. It's you just feel this substantial, solid energy. It's energy that becomes matter, right, is getting sublimated into chi. Okay. So it's this feeling, again, like you're down. (laughs) Like uh, you're getting down. Um, It's not hot sexual energy. Um, 
but it's this experience of very solid uh, and all the way down. You're using your whole being to yeah. do this thing. Nice. And so then, so the way you lose chi is through intense reactive emotions. So if you have like a big outburst of anger or uh, you fall into a big panic attack or anxiety or whatever, you're burning up your chi. Um, and so it's through practice of awareness of breathing or pranayama practice, qigong practice, that you learn how to harmonize your breath energy. And then at the same time, that's working with emotions also. Okay, and so then the shen is the heart-mind. And the way you lose that or the way that gets lost is you're caught up in conceptual thinking. Okay. And so the experience when you're meditating that your mind wanders off in the thought, that's your shen getting depleted. Mm. Your heart-mind is getting depleted because you're getting caught up in the thoughts. Mm-hmm. Whereas through stillness, through letting go, you come back into the heart-mind. You come back into this experience of presence itself. And then that's how that shen, the heart-mind, gets cultivated or developed. And when that shen is getting cultivated then the chi sublimates into the shen so then you have this experience then of all three levels of that energy merging together and becoming one unified energy and so that's how you get into these deeper levels of meditative absorption or trance wow and when we talk about the experience of awakening when you're when you're around an awakened being there's another threshold that they've gone beyond where the shen is sublimated to however you want to call it, the ground of being, nirvana, the Tao. Oh, wow. Um, the non-dual ground of being. That So moving from, that, from an intuition grounded in that is going to be far more in the flow of what truly is than through right. some conceptual filter yeah you're fully down yeah fully yeah. down <laughs> yeah, exactly. in the ground of being yeah <laughs> right wow. you can't get any, <laughs> you cannot get any further down nice nice so I guess that's what it would really mean to truly move from the heart space is to really be all the way down and embodied into all that is right and then that there can be so the way of devotion the bhakti marga path right yeah or love or the desire for awakening is this deep heartfelt experience that is a purifying um, expression that's coming from deep within you that's not your ego mm. it's some it's this deeper level of love and yearning for this awakening um, so 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 the experience of love or devotion is directly related to the heart mind and that experience of awakening. I love that. And maybe that's why there's so much, uh, as we were talking about maybe before we started recording, there was overlap between the, the bhakti and the Buddhist movements and the Ramdas satsang. And right. there's so much of this, this overlap. Um, that was something else I kind of wanted to ask you about. Um, your time as a Buddhist monk uh, was split up in uh, France uh, um, mm-hmm. and studying in the monastery, but you also spent time in India 
with Hindu teachers. Yeah. So um, the difference between orthodoxy and orthopraxy was introduced to me only recently uh, yeah. in, in yeah, an yeah. interfaith ritual class. But in my mind, uh, I kind of avoided a lot of traditions because I thought, well, I have to believe it 100% in order to be a part of that group. Yeah. And I don't believe anything 100%, so I can't even participate. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas I come to find out later... If you just follow the rules of that group, you're allowed to think whatever you want. <laughs> yeah. And I, yeah. that's something that really kind of blew my mind. Um, so I, I, I guess I, I would love to hear you just talk a little yeah. bit about what it was like to be a Buddhist monk practicing mm-hmm. uh, in India with Hindu teachers. Yeah. Um, well, again, yeah, even before I was a monk, when I was at Vassar, I was learning how to meditate at Zen Mountain Monastery. Mm-hmm. Um. And then right the summer after our, I can't remember. Yeah, yeah. The summer after college, um, I was in Europe and I was with Mother Mira, who's a guru from India that lives in Germany. Yeah. And so, yeah, I had like a real deep experience being in, in her presence. And it was just her presence was the main thing. It wasn't. Like, when you go see her, she does darshan, you sit in a room for maybe two hours, and it's completely silent. And then one by one, you go up, and she um, touches your head and then looks in your eyes. Yeah. Um, And so I was there for two weeks, and so during that two-week period, I had, like, uh, what I would call, like, kind of a brief opening to this deeper ground of being. Um, And so that took place completely within silence and presence there was no teaching yeah. like uh like, Ram, like the ramana maharshi lineage <laughs> right. you also studied within <laughs> right um and then after um i can't maybe a year later i was um my my girlfriend who actually became my fiance and then she actually ordained with me she became a nun i became a monk yeah, you guys um, did that instead of the marriage. Thing. Right. Uh, <laughs> Different she, kind of vows. <laughs> she had already spent time in India with Amici, so so I saw Amici in New Mexico and Texas. Um, and so, again, so so being with Mother Mira, being with Amici, being with Thich Nhat Hanh, to me it's like the same basic experience of I'm around someone who's uh, reached some level of very deep awakening and just their being itself is radiating this powerful energy field of um, bliss, uh, transcendence, while at the same time very in the present moment, very grounded. Um, and so for me, it's like I'm just re- just I'm just relating to three different human beings and having very much a similar kind of experience. Yeah, and so whatever words you want to put on top of it is secondary. Um, like that's just totally. the packaging or whatever. Yeah. Uh, so for me, it's and then so th- so yeah. I later on got into Ramana Maharishi's teachings. Um, so for me, yeah, that the teachings from Ramana Maharishi to me are. I guess, like, I would count as, like, perennial, a perennial uh, viewpoint, perennial philosophy, meaning there's, like, 
uh, one mountaintop and different paths to get to the top. Yeah. Yeah. And some will argue, oh, well, there, you, 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 there's more than one mountaintop. Uh, <laughs> which my my response is, if I if I ever get to the point where I have to make <laughs> a choice between one mountaintop or the other, I'll, I'll consider myself in a pretty good space. Yeah. But yeah. all I know is I got to get from here. I, I got to get somewhere. Um, and so for me, the teachings of Buddhism, uh, especially like early Buddhist Thai forest uh, interpretation of early Buddhism, uh, Chan Buddhism, uh, Japanese Zen Buddhism, Thich Nhat Hanh, Mother Mira, Amanchi, Ramana Maharishi, uh, Ramdas, all of them, even getting into the Yoga Sutras, like all of them, I think are all pointing to the same experience of awakening to this ground of being. Um, that that's the that's the goal, mm-hmm. yeah. And that there's people that have had to one degree or another an awakening or a, realiz- a realization of that, which causes a radical transformation. And when you're around them, you have this experience of this whatever you want to call it, some powerful experience when you're around them. Yeah. Yeah. What was, I, I, I guess, uh, I'm just trying to visualize the situation. And, mm-hmm. um, uh, I, I guess I, I wonder if you had any, any conflict representing, uh, a tradition that has somewhat strict Vinaya, the rule, yeah. the rule, your monastic mm-hmm. code that you're supposed to follow. Um, India can be sometimes difficult for different reasons. Yeah. Um, did you get any pushback from your own community for doing that? Uh, did you yeah. do, encounter any difficulties while you're in India? Or going um, back and forth. I know you came back to teach meditation to yeah. earn some funds to go back. Yeah. Any difficulties? Yeah, I mean, it was just like like the Tignahan community definitely, at least in the beginning when he was ordaining people, he started, I guess he started ordaining people sometime in the 80s or 90s. Okay. Um, and there was a general intention that you stay with the community the rest of your life. Yeah. And you don't go to another community. Um, and that's the form that he wanted to present. Um, but if you look at Buddhism in general in different countries in Asia, it's not uncommon that you might start with one teacher, but then you move around to other teachers. That that's You may spend a certain formative period where... Like, say, the first five or six years, you're supposed to be with one teacher just to get solidified. But then after that, okay, you can stay or you can go. It's up to you. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so when I left, the Tignanham was saying, oh, you shouldn't go. And people in the community were saying, oh, either you shouldn't go or we don't want you to go. <laughs> um, and I was basically like, okay. Maybe I shouldn't go, but like maybe it's wrong for me to go, but I gotta go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, you gotta move from that heart space, right? <laughs> right. And so uh, it's an ongoing experiment whether I should have gone or not. But, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um. So, but when I was in India, I was with Lakshmana Swami and Sri Sardama. So Lakshmana Swami is a guru who was with Ramana Maharishi, and okay. according to his autobiography he he became realized in ramana's presence uh when he was young like 20 something and then um sardama knew him from when she was a little girl and 
according to her autobiography, she became realized in Lakshmana Swami's presence when she was like, I think around 18. Okay. And he basically adopted her as his daughter. Um, and so all of these gurus who I've been with um, have never had sex. They've always been celibate. Um, yeah, they never never had sex. Uh, and then, again, Thich Nhat Hanh doesn't openly say what level of awakening he's reached. Yeah. So, but from my perspective, what they all have in common is that they're pretty deeply realized beings um, and one way of I don't know, it just so happens that none of them ever had sex <laughs> and not for all of their students, but for some of their students they recommend that you be celibate mm -hmm. because that uh, is considered like the process of awakening will happen more quickly if you do that I know if if I never tasted a cookie before, right, right, <laughs> I would be curious about what a cookie tastes like, right, right. but I, I wouldn't occasionally right. get that sugar craving in that right. same way. Like right. I want that specific flavor. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. I can I can imagine there's something to having a, a, a different sense of peace of mind of having never right. had that right awakened in such a way. And so these gurus I was with, they they were very informal. There was no. Mm -hmm. um, you didn't become a monastic with them. You just either were spending time with them or not. But there was no ceremony or rules or whatever. Well, in India, there's different levels of guru, right? Yeah. And so yeah. The, I imagine these are the, as you said, the awakened beings who are the way and you just hang out in their presence versus, yeah. versus yeah. the other kind of a guru who's more of a teacher who mm -hmm. teaches you formal practices or initiates you into a lineage. Yeah. And then there's the less formal kind mm -hmm. of just means teacher. Yeah. They generally teach you. So yeah. there's these different levels of guru that people aren't always aware of, I think, in the West. Yeah. So it's important, yeah. to, I think, to make that dis distinction. Yeah. And so so, um, so it was very informal. But then having said that, there was this organic recognition of celibacy as being a good thing for those who were uh, ready for it. For others, that wasn't their karma. So... Um, um, so there were there were actually other Buddhist monks and nuns with these gurus besides just me. Uh, um, there was like three or four from Korea that were with these teachers. Oh, cool! And so there was a general, like in Buddhism, we talk about the fourfold sangha of monks, nuns, laymen, and laywomen. So when I was with these gurus, there was a general understanding of men and women, celibate, non-celibate, um, and so, in other words, I was supported to be a monk Yeah. Um, when I was around them. And yeah. I was seen as a monk around them. So, it was like, um, it was, it was the, the ecosystem knew what this was and was supporting it. Yeah. Yeah, you're in the homeland of the tradition, I guess. It's, it's, it's not surprising to me that it's understood there and they've, they've got a place for, for spiritual right. seekers there to be differentiated in their own unique ways whereas here in the west we might be a little bit more touchy about how we make that distinction yeah and so it's not seen as like you're weird or you're uh just suppressing something or mm -hmm. uh so i think that's i mean i think both cultures can learn from each other oh absolutely so and there's some people that become celibate because they got some stuff they need to work out that they're running away from 
and actually they should stay in touch with their sexual energy because yeah. they gotta they need to work something well, out what does Ramdas say <laughs> Ramdas says uh, there's no use in running around as a horny celibate <laughs> right exactly yeah. like also don't force yourself to meditate when it's naturally arising then then you're gonna do it but doing, right. doing it because you think you ought to yeah. is a recipe for disaster right so so I guess what I feel is missing in western culture though is an understanding of Yes, this full, deep level of awakening is possible. It's a completely different uh, category of experience. Um, and so I guess just, the, you know, the limit of what's possible, I feel like in the West is not fully recognized. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I feel like we can get into this weird situation where people are put up on pedestals that, and we think that's the ultimate and really no that's not the ultimate that's just like yeah. like yeah. one of the cool steps along the way <laughs> <laughs> right yeah exactly yeah yeah um i think that we're, the western science is trying to do more analyzing of of some mm-hmm. of these uh psychic phenomenon or deeper right. states of consciousness uh like the overlap between quantum quantum physics and consciousness studies yeah. is 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 yeah. exciting and <laughs> yeah. So I, I think the the gap is starting to be bridged as as the West comes up to the deeper understanding yeah. that the East has had for some time. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting to watch. <laughs> and so that yeah, my research I'm interested in that crossover between Buddhism and psychotherapy. So I feel like one of the one of the insights Western culture has brought about is awareness of abuse and. Um, awareness of the need for a space so if you think uh, if you go see a therapist that's outside your normal social circle it's completely confidential um, and you can talk directly about issues about abuse yeah right so maybe that has always been there in buddhism informally but it's not you don't see it explicitly talked about uh, or dealt with right i mean there may be some trauma of a natural disaster or something but there's not like dealing with issues of of abuse like that's not explicitly talked about it seems like throughout most of history from my understanding like it's just that's not acknowledged you don't talk about family abuse like Mm -hmm. sexual or violent or whatever like it's just it's just a matter of fact and we don't talk about it right that's yeah it seems like that's across the board everywhere in in all cultures and i don't know maybe like um in one of the social ethics class i teach on the five precepts we get into indigenous cultures and there's this book sharing our stories of survival about native american women yeah survivors of sexual abuse and talking about how pre-colonial contact there just wasn't as much abuse going on because their society had deeper respect for women and had like a worldview that was respecting women and the earth and there was just less abuse period Mm mm-hmm and and maybe that's not true for all indigenous cultures in the US but they they point to specific ones where that where they feel like they have evidence of that yeah. you know so um so so I always hesitate to say that the west has invented something new that hadn't been there before but but we can say relatively speaking uh psychotherapy has provided a space or it's opened a door where certain things can be dealt with that previously were not dealt with mm-hmm. and 
from my experience, at least in Buddhism, as a monastic and studying the text and things, that that that's a missing piece. And, yeah, I um, can see that. So, okay, Western culture doesn't fully get the Nirvana thing, um, yeah. but there is a recognition of this interpersonal thing that is very important. Um, and so, so I'm interested in the best of both, like integrating the best of both. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like you're doing a pretty good job of <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> incorporating, uh, yeah. those modalities. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, we're in this such an interesting time right now. I think because everybody has a voice, the, Mm-hmm. The voice of dissent is allowed to come to the surface, and yeah. so we can challenge our authority figures and our our paradigms that have been mm-hmm. just so blanketly accepted in the past. And yeah. then we have access to all the modalities, and so we're able to easily uh, cross-identify similarities between psychotherapy and Buddhism yeah. because we just have access to all that information. Yeah. So it's yeah. it's such an inter- interesting time, and and although it is getting darker in some ways, I think the the potential for healing and growth is greater than it has ever been because of that access yeah. to information. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's really interesting. Yeah. Um, so maybe that kind of brings us in uh, to, to the paper. Yeah. 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 So, <laughs> right? so I think that's, yeah, this, there's the Nirvana transcendent. There's the interpersonal, um, like psychotherapy is like mainly dealing with like in individuals, uh, and interpersonal suffering, um and then so then I think there's a third area which would be the collective social justice area. Yeah. Uh so we could think of these as three different zones that overlap with each other. Um and so so a big argument can be made is that psychotherapy uh has not dealt with the social justice level of suffering that it's it's kept its focus on the individual and like yeah not dealt with collective issues of social justice even within the social programs i'm just thinking at a glance Mm -hmm. right now it seems Mm -hmm. like individually geared like Mm -hmm. like for example when you were going and working with incarcerated peoples you were going and teaching the group Mm -hmm. but it was Mm -hmm. kind of for their own individual benefits right yeah i wasn't rather than addressing like you're not talking to the the staff and getting them to change their practices as a as an institution right you're talking to the incarcerated people individually that's very much something i'm interested in is yeah like basically i'm going in as a buddhist teacher teaching buddhism um and i'll talk a little bit about racism and stuff but uh so if, if you know, okay, the new Jim Crow, she, Michelle Alexander talks about how prisons are basically like the continuation of slavery, right? Yeah. So it's like they're plantations, basically. Um, and I'm like a minister walking onto a plantation. And so like during the Civil War, you had Quaker ministers who were abolitionists uh, who would go to plantations and oh, might wow. meet with the slave owner and or the slaves, but depending on the particular situation, they may or may not be able to openly talk about what interesting uh, they want to talk about. So I taught in a maximum security prison for four years and I was just at the beginning, I was just talking about Buddhism 
And in other words, I wasn't trying to form the equivalent of a Buddhist Black Panther Party <laughs> in the prison. Yeah. But I'm very interested in the idea of <laughs> what would a Buddhist Black Panther movement be? Yeah. Where it's a religious-based organization that's working inside the prison and outside the prison. There's a spiritual cultivation aspect to it, and there's very much a social justice aspect to it. That sounds like fire. I like it. <laughs> right. That sounds so good. Right. So, uh. so that, uh, and I'm just this white guy talking about it, right? So, so. Work with what you got. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so this article, The Dependent Origination of Whiteness, what is white supremacy from a Buddhist perspective? Yeah, like, like, yeah. Yeah, what is white supremacy from a Buddhist perspective? Yeah, so uh, I, I'd like to also uh, share the 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 name and like the little yeah. the little bio about the journal that you published in because yeah. um, as I was considering what to do with my life before I decided to go back to school, I was starting to just learn more and more. Mm-hmm. And when I discovered online uh, academic journals. Yeah. I was like, oh, wow, Like I don't have to read Wikipedia to get my info. I can mm-hmm. read what actual scholars are doing. So the world of academic journals really kind of changed my yeah. ability to access information. Um, and I was uh, grateful for the opportunity to discover this journal through your paper because I poked mm-hmm. around on their website a little bit. Yeah. And they've got some really cool stuff on there. So, yeah, yeah I'm just going to read their bio real quick. So CalFu is a journal of comparative and relational ethnic studies. Tagline out the bag. Um, but on their about page, it says Calfu is a scholarly journal focused on social movements, social institutions, and social relationships or relations. Excuse me. They seek to build links among intellectuals, artists, and activists in shared struggles for social justice. The journal seeks to promote the development of community-based scholarship in ethnic studies among humanists and social scientists, and to connect the specialized knowledge produced from academe to the s- situated knowledge generated in aggrieved communities. CalFu is published by Temple University Press on behalf of the UCSB Center for Black Studies Research. So right off the bat, like, wow, like they're doing some pretty cool uh, work bringing different communities and different uh, levels of scholarship together. And I think it's really cool that that you were able to publish within that journal. Yeah, so um, George Lipsitz, he's the editor. Um, So as part of my... PhD coursework at Claremont School of Theology. I took a class at Claremont Graduate University that was taught by Susan Phillips, who's she's a professor at Fisher College, but she taught a class at CGU. It's kind of complicated, but anyway. <laughs> so, uh, so she taught a class on the prison industrial complex and the prison abolition movement. Wow. Um, so her research is she did this whole ethnographic research of of um, of gangs in LA and um, so anyway, so it was a class on prison abolition, and so by then I had already started teaching uh, in prison, and I wanted to learn more about the prison system and the abolition movement. So again, th- that connection between slavery and prison industrial complex. So they're using the term abolition abolition of slavery and now it's abolition of prisons in general 
not yeah. not just uh, private prisons. Like uh, California re- just passed this law a couple days right. ago. Today's the 21st of September. So yeah. <laughs> we're recording this. So a couple days yeah. ago, they passed a law saying they were going to ban private prisons yeah. or just not renew their contracts next year, actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But so we're not talking about that. We're talking about all prisons. Yeah. So moving away from a model of uh, punishment to rehabilitation, I imagine. Yeah. So that. I mean, the, the statistics of how we incarcerate way more people than any other country and um, from there's different ways you can look at it. But like from a Marxist perspective, you could say that basically with neoliberalism, the the manufacturing jobs left the U.S. So then now you have this big surplus labor force which a lot of them happen to be people of color and there's nowhere for them to go. There's no jobs for them. So then the system criminalized them. Mm -hmm. And then this prison industrial complex is what came out of it. So what I say is white supremacy is a system of extractivism and it's extracting land, labor, and life force. Yeah. So you can think during the original settler colonial time, it's extracting land from Native Americans, it's extracting labor from African Americans, it's extracting life force from both. Yep. And so you could look at the prison industrial complex as a way of extracting from black and brown bodies. It's a way of extracting uh, wealth from their life force. Like yeah. literally you put them in a box and you turn that into money for, uh, yeah, people on the top. And the state, yeah. <laughs> right. So then, yeah, so the general idea is that the system of white supremacy has created this situation where you have this dehumanizing system uh, and this hierarchical system, and then that's the, the prison is a manifestation of that. Whereas, like, if we had a different system altogether that provided education, that provided housing, that provided health care, um, that redefined what uh, the goals of the society should be about, then there would be no need for the prison. The prison is serving a function that could be met in a different way. Mm-hmm. Um, so if we re if we reached if we spent all the money we spent on prisons, on schools, education, healthcare, uh, say now the Green New Deal, if we spent all of the money, if we if we cut the military budget, and that's the other thing is that the military is the other side of the prison system. So. Yeah. The foreign policy and the domestic policy are both based on extractivism. Yeah. If we cut the military budget and the prison budget and then use all that money uh, for, say, a just Green New Deal, like climate justice and for reparations, um, then, yeah, there would be no need for prisons. So the prison abolition movement is saying we don't need prisons. We need like a new society. Totally. 
Yeah, and I think you mentioned some of those, uh, like the solutions towards the end of your article, like reinvesting in those communities. Right. Because essentially we're criminalizing poverty, and then that's what what the the prison ends up being. It's the punishment for being poor and and not having the means to supporting yourself, which is why people turn to quote-unquote crime. Right. Yeah. Right. So reinvesting back in the communities, yeah, it it sounds like a plausible solution to the, the supposed problems that we're having with crime. And and I think as well dealing with issues of addiction and trauma, and again, which we're are talking, also criminalized in this, right. in this system. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah. And again, we're I, we can talk about addiction and trauma on an individual level, but we can also talk about it on a collective level, and we can talk about trauma as again how Marie Watkins and Helene Schulman that trauma can be victim, bystander, or perpetrator. Mm-hmm. So we can say for sure that people of color have been uh, experiencing victim trauma and then white supremacists are experiencing perpetrator trauma. And the way that they're acting it out is to keep doing things that are traumatizing. Yeah. So it's a system that requires uh, dissociation, dehumanization, uh, it's a system that requires that you get cut off from your own embodied experience. Mm-hmm. And so then to undo the system means that everyone involved has to be able to get back in touch with their embodied experience and deal with the trauma that's there so that then we can rehumanize ourselves. And then the experience of being together as one collective uh, can happen whereas the way it is now uh, whether you're an overt white supremacist or just uh, a white person who's got implicit bias and you voted for Trump or, and, and, or like well for example like Medicare for all uh, a single a single health care system would mean we're all one body sharing one body together yeah so that's the equivalent of like someone who's had trauma getting back into their body and then this trauma comes up and you got to release it so you can be back in your body. So for us to have like a collective healthcare system would mean collectively we have to get back into our body and then that means the trauma that's there has to be dealt with. Yeah, but nobody wants to put their hand in the fire, right? <laughs> right. Nobody wants to experience that pain, and that's I think that's the, the the point, right? We keep turning away from that pain until we perpetuate it and make it worse and stuff right. it down and right <laughs> and perpetuate that suffering uh, for ourselves and uh, yeah, the supposed other and the, and this I mean for for people who are the the target group or experiencing most of the victim trauma, they're already feeling the pain. Yeah. So for them, the pain is not new. Um, absolutely so then yeah the people that are in the perpetrator group part of the system that allows the perpetrator pattern to keep happening is this dissociation or being out of touch with the pain that's there Hmm. you give some really nice concrete examples in your Mm -hmm. article Um, I mean you talk very specifically about what dependent origination is which maybe we we should say that um, yeah. But then, yeah, you give some really nice concrete examples of how it manifestation, manifests uh, in the mind of the European-American uh, that right. allows us to continue 
holding on to this sense of whiteness. You want to talk a little right. bit about the specifics of maybe one of those examples and maybe what dependent origination is uh, sure. in, in a nutshell? Yeah. So, so in Buddhism, the Four Noble Truths, there's suffering, it's caused by craving, it's possible for the cessation of suffering to happen. Uh, the way you do that is you engage in a path of practice that involves um, keeping ethical precepts, uh, uh, developing stability of body and mind through meditation, and then processing um, stored up intense material. And so the second noble truth, the cause of suffering, is seen um, craving is one link in a chain and there's different if you look at the Buddhist uh, teaching the, for the Pali Canon there'll be chains with different numbers of links mm-hmm. um, but it's called the like say the 12 links of dependent origination or the 6 links of dependent origination and so so what it's saying then is this, it's this cycle that keeps happening over and over again and so I like to use the 6 link chain and so basically it's saying it's these six links that keep circling around and so um, the six links are the first link is uh, I have a body and mind the second link is that there's contact between my body and mind and the outside world meaning I see something I hear something I smell something or I think something yeah because in Buddhism thought is seen as just another sense space yeah um that contact gives rise to sensation, meaning body sensation, which can be pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Mm-hmm. And so if it's pleasant sensation, it tends to give rise to craving. If it's unpleasant, it tends to give rise to aversion. Yeah. If it's neutral, it can um, tend to give rise to spaced out, like you're not aware that it's even happening. Okay, so say it's a pleasant sensation, it gives rise to craving, Um and then you act on the craving. That's the next link, which is grasping. And then once you've acted on it, it's like the karmic wheel is in motion and you can't pull it back. So then the sixth link, which is becoming, you become or are reborn into a new body and mind that is experiencing the results of the karma that you just acted on. Nice. I really... Uh, it. It was a game changer for me when uh, I heard you explain rebirth in this this form of constantly becoming a, right. a nude in every moment. Right. Somebody cuts you off in traffic, you are right. reborn as an angry person who honks at them. Right. Uh, right. So uh, it, it really gave a new secular application to what people often dismiss as too much woo-woo of the spirituality right. of, of rebirth. Right. Um, yeah. So body-mind, contact, sensation, craving, grasping, becoming. So how does that how does that work in terms of uh, uh, whiteness? <laughs> right. Okay. So, um, like I said, so a mundane example is um, I'm at my workplace. So my body and mind is there, and then somebody yells at me. So I, my ears make contact with somebody's voice. It gives rise to an unpleasant sensation in my body, and then I have the craving to yell back at the person. Yeah. Or uh, so aversion. And then if I act on it, if I yell at the person, then I'm reborn as someone who's yelled at that person. So basically, I've identified with the anger and the action that the anger is propelling me to do. 
and then, I, then I've acted on it. And so the general idea is that when you act out on craving and aversion, there may be some short-term temporary high, yeah. but then it leads to a crash. It leads to uh, ultimately you're depleted or there's you've caused suffering or disharmony. And so it may feel good in the moment to yell back at the person, but then you've uh, created a whole mess and <laughs> yeah. you regret it later. And that's that's different from. Okay, so so that's different from being present with the body sensation that comes up, and if it's an intense body sensation that's pleasant or unpleasant, like learning how to be with it through practice. So through awareness of breathing, awareness of body sensation, and practice, you learn how to be with the sensation. And then that way you can let go of the craving or the aversion. You don't have to uh, fall into the reaction. So a skilled practitioner would uh, would notice those sensations arising, mm -hmm. acknowledge them, mm -hmm. even sit with them potentially until they yeah. dissipate it on their own. Not necessarily reject or let go of them mm -hmm. in a disassociative way, but allow them to be embodied acknowledge their source acknowledge <laughs> yeah. the, the the deeper reality of the situation and that you don't need to react to it and that awareness alone at least in my experience just bringing that up for myself gives the sensation more space and yeah. it, and it naturally most much of the time not all the time tends, right. tends to dissipate on its own yeah and which is what somatic trauma therapy is saying the same thing is that your peter levine somatic experiencing he says you want to decouple the sensation from the reactive emotion yes so when trauma is coming up you're experiencing it as intense body sensation as well as intense reactive emotions of rage or fear yeah you're adding all these thoughts to what the sensation is and yeah mm -hmm. you're, you're ascribing all these qualities to it and justifying all your feelings and yeah <laughs> and it's the whole biochemical thing so you're like parts of your brain are getting activated that are very deep level uh, instinctual responses, yeah. right? So, um, so the practice is, yeah, to be aware of, oh, wait a minute, there's a difference between the body sensation and the emotion. So first, just being able to make a distinction between the two. Totally. And then that it is possible to be with the sensation and not be overwhelmed by it. And this is where it gets tricky because there's when trauma comes up, sometimes there's a particular part of the brain that makes you literally feel like you're going to die. Yeah. Come up. You feel that in your body, in your emotion, in your mind, I'm going to die. It, it feels like you're going to die. Well, it's an evolutionary trait that's helped right. us survive in the past, right? It's, it's, <laughs> so it's, it's built right, in. Right. So... And, and this, it's very, it gets into, they talk about like the new mammal part of the brain, the old mammal part of the brain, and the reptile part of the brain. And, uh -huh. um, but anyway, the point being, it's very powerful, intense sensations and very powerful reactive emotions. And the idea around the practice is to develop awareness and equanimity with the sensations so that you can then let go of the reactive emotions. And what that means then is, you're not pushed into a reaction. Mm -hmm. Okay, so then when you're able to be with the sensations as they are, 
then there can be a stabilizing, a grounding, and then, yeah, a dissipation of the energy, a calming, a going back down. And if the situation does call for a response, a, an authentic response can arise that you can act on that is good for you and the, the everybody involved. So you may be in a situation that does actually call for an extremely strong response of maybe even a strong physical action, but it's coming from this place of awareness and equanimity that's aware of the interbeing or the interdependent experience of what's going on, and that is coming from wisdom and compassion, and that's trying to create a situation of harmony or balance. And so, depending on the context, like, I mean, um, so I, I guess my point being that what I'm talking about doesn't mean you just become completely passive or that there's not a difference between healthy anger that's channeled through wisdom and compassion as a force for justice, uh, that that is uh, actually one of the outcomes we do want to cultivate, is yeah. that that's a wholesome karma that we do want to uh, grow and make stronger. Yeah. But, um, yeah, so we're, so we're distinguishing between those things. So then, okay, so then in the paper, I I just imagine myself as a white colonial settler. So I imagine, basically I talk about like how Europeans were reborn as white supremacist Americans through the process of native genocide and African enslavement. Yeah. And there's scholarship saying that even within Europe before colonialism, they had some fucked up dynamics going on that I'm this sure. is a continuation. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but in this particular moment, this is the birth of whiteness as we know it. Um, so, so I'm a European, say, from England, and I'm in... I make... Uh, my body and mind is on the land of what we now call the United States, okay? And so then my body and mind sees all this land. So I make contact with uh, the image of the land in front of me, and that gives rise to this pleasant sensation like, wow, all this land. And then there's the creating of, I want that land. And then there's me acting out, I... I I take possession of that land and then now I'm reborn as I am the person that owns this land. Yeah. Okay. So then in that process, oh, there's, I see Native Americans on that land. So my eyes make contact with Native Americans and that gives rise to this unpleasant sensation of they're on the land that I want. Yep. So I want to get rid of them. I have an aversion I have an unpleasant sensation, and then there's an aversion. Yeah. Okay, so now, closely related to these six links is this experience of ignorance. So it's kind of like another layer that's adding into it. The main thing is the body sensation and the emotion. But adding into it is these uh, thought patterns and so basically, there has to be a thought pattern that allows me to dehumanize the 
person that I'm about to inflict some kind of uh, violence or extractivism on. And what I'm saying is, in the process of dehumanizing the other, I'm also dehumanizing myself. I'm. Oh, yeah. Uh, so. It's almost like there's a mini version of the sixth link that happens where I, in my body and mind, make contact with the idea that I'm a white person who's Christian and superior, and that Native American is a non white person who's not Christian and inferior. And then I like that gives pleasant sensation in me. So then I identify with that identity, that thought pattern. So there's almost like a mini rebirth that happens right there yeah. in my head. I'm, so now I'm reborn in my head as a white person. Well, that seems like <clears throat> the, the, the ground of justification for all the ex, the, right. the, the horrible immigration policies and foreign wars and right. And creating the the demonized other. Yeah. Any any. Okay. So so the way I'm defining extractivism as a dominating group or a perpetrator group extracting the land, labor, and or life force from a target group, mm-hmm. and then that requires then that the perpetrator group dehumanize the target group as well as dehumanize themselves. So then. I do this little mini mental dehumanizing and that prepares me then for the actual act of violence of killing the Native Americans or pushing them off their land. Mm-hmm. So that's a much deeper, more intense level experience, which is going to bring about a much deeper level of trauma. So once I have seen the Native American, uh, it's given rise to this aversion the desire to kill the Native American, and then I act on that desire and I actually kill the Native American, then I'm really reborn as a white person and I'm really buying I'm really buying into they are a less than human person that is it doesn't matter if they kill them or not. Yeah. So then after so now I'm reborn as a white person and then when I think back on that experience that is a major trauma experience. To kill someone is a major traumatizing experience. So if I think back on it, or if I see more Native Americans, that trauma is going to come up mm-hmm. as very intense body sensation. So yeah. there's contact. Either I see something or I think something. And so that past trauma caused by my past perpetrator violence is going to come up in the form of intense body sensation and intense emotion. Yeah. And if I'm not able to be with that, and basically some kind of truth and reconciliation process within myself, okay, then then I'm going to need to double down on the dehumanizing, dissociating identity of whiteness as a way to escape that body sensation. I got to trip out big time into my head and, like, check out from the body experience. Yeah. And so then... I'm a really fucking white person. Uh, And then I'm left with this empty hole of a shell of a being inside. And now I got to fill up that hole. So then that hole has got to get filled up with some kind of intense addictive craving. Which is the escapism. 
that we turn to in some myriad ways. Right. So either addiction and or a way of using religion to dissociate and and or further extractivism of land, labor and life force from people of color to gain some sensory, sensual pleasure uh, I'm extracting pleasure from the target group. I'm dehumanizing the target group and extracting pleasure from them in order to escape the the trauma that uh, I have inside of me. That's a hell of a hamster wheel you get yourself on there, buddy. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, and so I was kind of struck by the paper because that's, I guess, the the big point of it all. This is the, this right. is the ongoing process of whiteness today. Right. I thought the paper might be more about... Uh, the historical precedent for how we got mm-hmm. to where we are today, mm-hmm. which, uh, you know, as, as we talked about a little bit, you do cover and give that background, but it is more about this ongoing process of perpetuating this, this state of white, right. this state of whiteness through this disassociation and perpetuating this, um, this, this, this sense of, of dehumanizing the other. Right. That the process of, um, rebirth is happening now. So it's the same, yeah. it's the same dynamic that was happening then the, the mechanics of it are the same. Uh, except now it's got like 400 years of momentum. Yeah. It's going to take a lot more healing circles than it would have back then. Right. The level of collective trauma that's been built up and now it's become planetary. Now, I mean, yeah. now we've reached... Um, if you read that quote at the beginning of the paper, I quote George Lipschitz. Um, okay, yeah, I'll read it. Okay, so this is what George is saying. Um, the white identity conditioned to fear the Asian menace owes its origin to the history of anti-Indian, anti-black, and anti-Mexican racism at home, as well as to anti-Arab and anti-Latino racism shaped by military struggles overseas and by condescending cultural stereotypes at home. White racism is a pathology looking for a place to land, sadism in search of a story. So... We can look at whiteness then as this ongoing process of rebirth that's, uh, yeah, it's just, it's looking for a target group to dehumanize uh, and extract from, it's, it's, it wants to extract pleasure and it also wants to inflict violence. Mm-hmm. It wants to, yeah, it wants to do both. Yeah. Wow. So what are how do we go about So someone like you and I Yeah <laughs> we're we're um interested in in uh, pulling out and uprooting our own inherent biases and, yeah. and and picking this stuff apart um but a lot of people are are still deeply entrenched in their identity of of being a white person Yeah uh they're really invested in extractivist mentality um, I've had difficulty engaging with uh, other white presenting people. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I, I guess there's uh, instead of calling out, there's this idea of call in culture. We yeah. call people in, uh, yeah. but sometimes it's hard to even engage with it. So, like, I have uh, two examples of it. Maybe it's kind of ridiculous, but people on Facebook they made jokes, yeah. insensitive jokes. They were mm-hmm. both uh, Black Lives Matters jokes. Yeah, one of them went out and had a big meal, and he made a joke and said hashtag Fat Lives Matter. Yeah. It's like, okay, well, I think I gotta say something. So yeah. I was like, I just had to point out that it was insensitive and 
bringing down uh, the efficacy of the movement and yada yada. And this person was offended because he's actually half Mexican. And so he just focused on the fact that I was saying as mm. a white person, we can't do this, whatever. And he's like, well, I'm not white. Yeah. And so he didn't even want to engage with the issues. Yeah. The other person made a joke. She went out and <clears throat> did some drinking and she made a joke. Uh, hashtag drunk wives matter. Right. So again, same thing. And so she was like, I don't even want to be political. I'll just take down the post. Yeah. So like, I mean, it was just Facebook, so it's not the appropriate place to engage with people necessarily. Yeah. Um, but even in in person, I, I have a difficult time engaging with people who are are making yeah. insensitive jokes and and are, are saying things that are are deeply biased from uh, a, a superior uh, privileged point of view. Yeah. So how I, I wonder if if you have any input in how we can even bring this topic up to yeah. to. to other white presenting people and uh, mm -hmm. the greater communities. Yeah. I, I think the first thing is just being aware how deep it is and that from, from what, at least the lens I'm looking through, is that we are dealing with trauma. Like, it is trauma that we are dealing with. And so then the the somatic trauma therapy approaches that uh, I'm interested in and that I feel like have a lot of overlap with Buddhism, these somatic trauma therapy approaches understand that when you're working with trauma, just working on the level of concepts and thought and the thinking mind and the rational mind is not going to get the job done. It won't get into the deep level healing and transformation that has to happen because that's you're dealing again with these primal forces of the limbic system and the brain stem and um yeah so so i think one thing the the white liberal mistake is to think oh we just need to have rational discussions and then that's what will fix everything and it's like no it's not it goes down much deeper than that so the rational discussion can help to frame things, but what we're really talking about is this deeper level of body-mind experience. And so in trauma therapy as well as in Buddhist practice, that the idea is you first have to establish stability and then you work with material. You don't go straight to the material and try and work with it before the stability has been established. So I think the first benefit of this analysis is at least we can understand the depth of what's going on. Yeah. I mean, I'm not sitting here saying I know all that's going on. <laughs> yeah. I'm not saying this has completely figured everything out. But it's I'm, one study it's amongst <laughs> many, <laughs> right. many. Yeah, there's a lot of work but, being done. But... Um, it helps us not underestimate the depth of what we're dealing with. Yeah. Um, and so then, yeah, the process of getting out of it is going to be a very long, in-depth process. And it's, um, yeah, so there's general strategies of in trauma therapy. Like you start with the body and then the emotion and then the... Uh, thought pattern you don't start with the thought pattern and then the emotion and then the body sensation because then you'll just end up stirring up 
a memory and re-traumatizing yourself and you you won't you won't actually be healing you'll just be re-traumatizing yourself yeah so yeah i i'm i'm hearing that it's not necessarily uh going to be effective for me to engage with people at this level of conversation well <laughs> you still got to call it out <laughs> but um, i i I, I guess uh, also I want to interject to ask, mm-hmm. like I would never force somebody to deal with their trauma. I would never, right. like, you know, somebody has to be uh, willing and able and a uh, willing participant in their own healing right. to get anything done. Right. So maybe by just calling people out, it's less than uh, helpful as it would be to maybe in, invite them to, to look more deeply or right. or meet somebody where they're at and and have them take a bit of, of useful information so they can reflect on it if they want to. Right. So they can engage in some of this deeper somatic healing. Right. Right. Yeah. It's, it's a weird, um, I mean, we're in this crisis moment, right? Where if we don't heal from our trauma, we're going to bring the whole planet down. Yeah. So, uh, and so then it's like, Okay, who are who are the European Americans who are willing and able right now to do deeper level work? And okay, let's let's start doing that work. Okay, because it will blossom and it ripples. And I think that's right. yeah, part of right. what, I'm, what I'm doing on this podcast is that I don't want to tell anybody what they need to do to, right. to better themselves. But if I can just be an example of how I've healed, if somebody's into right. that and they want to pick up on it, cool. Like right. it's out there right. and it's free for them to take it or leave it. So I think that's one level is, okay, let's get like that. people who are willing and able. Let's start doing a collective healing process that involves contemplative practice and trauma therapy and education around history and social injustice. And let's, let's do it. Okay. Then I think this analysis helps us understand how Trump got elected, why uh, you have these like mass shootings, like basically white terrorist mass shootings. Um, that's intense level of trauma acting itself out. Yeah. So it, it at least helps us understand, okay, that's what's happening. And so then it helps us be able to be, we can predict behavior a little better. I mean, that makes by, sense. by nature of the beast, it's it's unpredictable because it's trauma, but it's it's like a controlled crash. Like, okay, we know yeah. that there's a certain segment of the population now that is highly traumatized and acting out or about to act out, and so we we understand that that's what that is, and we don't underestimate what that is, and then we can be more ready than to. It's almost like I feel like we have to create containers or structures that will predict that that is what's going to happen that a certain segment is going to freak out and form militias or white terrorist acts or whatever and so then the rest of us have to come together so say democratic socialists of america uh have to have a plan for like dealing with white violence. I mean like like what is if if we if Bernie gets elected and he's in power and he's in charge of the armed forces and white militias are going off uh what is the plan to deal with that? 
So tricky. And, and what if in the in within the military itself, elements go off? What's the plan to deal with that? And that's a very realistic <laughs> question. Like, right. I mean, I, I, the way I see it next year, like when the election goes off one way or another, like, ooh, it's looking scary. <laughs> like, right. I'm worried about it, but. Right. So there's um, Judith Herman, who, who was, is one of the, like, she's like one of the godmothers of trauma therapy. Uh, she and Bandy Lee co-wrote a book called The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump. And, and they, they talk about, Bandy Lee, her whole career is based on dealing with psychopathic, violent people. Like, that's her job. I think she's at Yale or... Um, um, she she deals with the psychopathic people, like, in prisons and um, the people that should be in prison. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I'm seeing in your article here, right. she's the former director of the research for the yeah. Center for the Study of Violence. Right. And you give this great uh, analogy of, or, uh, quote, ordinarily we carry out a routine process for treating people who are dangerous, containment, removal from access to weapons, and an urgent evaluation. And you give this analogy of... Uh, like uh, the, the father who's violent in the household and right and applying that to our, our collective situation. I thought that was a really uh, a good right. way, good way to, to illustrate the situation. Yeah. So it's okay. It's, it's a kind of a down and dirty way of trying to explain something. So, so it's falling under the idea of like a nuclear family with traditional gender roles and things. So um, take it with a grain of salt, but, <laughs> but the idea is, uh, Trump and the neoliberal far right wing the Republican Party is basically the father in the family who is abusing the wife and the children in the family. Uh the Democrats are are basically the the mom in the family who's enabling the father to keep doing the violence. Yeah. And then the children are the young people, the people of color, the people who are in the target groups who have to suffer under the rule of these parents. And so I'm very interested in how, how do, you know, this idea of microcosm and macrocosm, right? So how does a family that's dealing with domestic violence, how does that situation get dealt with? What are the strategies of dealing with that? And then now, what, 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 uh, how, what from that strategy or skill set can apply to the collective level of what we're dealing with? So then, if you think uh, a presidential debate on the debate stage, how do you like call out what's going on? <laughs> you you make the direct parallel. Yeah, yeah. It's such a shit show up there, though. It's like, how do you do that? I don't know. You start with a new group of ten. <laughs> well, but I, or, no, I hear you. And this I hear you. again, and this is where it gets dangerous. Is like, when do you actively push somebody's button uh, to make them, to bring them down? Mm. Um, because it's for the greater good. So, yeah. like the idea of if you could kill Hitler, that would be a good thing to do. Because, right? So. That's what you think, but then is is the, is the second in power going to be twice as bad? Right. Like you never know. Like if we took out Trump, would Pence be right. way worse? I, I, right. So again, I'm not oh, saying we should. So it's, I'm not saying we should shoot Trump. Playing but, with fire here. But what I'm saying is, 
Um, Remove the call, violent father. Ne- right. <laughs> call, call it call it what it really is. That yeah. this is this is a traumatized, abusive, uh, authority figure in power that's wreaking havoc and needs to be uh, have his weapons removed and he needs to be contained. Yeah. As like just the first step. And so, yeah, like that's that's like a big task of what we're going to have to do. Yeah. And then the family goes off and then they do their own healing work. And the, you say the father can engage in that healing if he wants to from afar, separate from the group. <laughs> right. Yeah. And this, I mean, I don't know enough about family therapy and how it works, but I was just imagining this is just like a thought experiment of like, okay, first of all, the father has to be removed yeah. from the family, meaning the Republicans have to be voted out of power. They have to be removed from power so that they can't further cause any further harm. Yeah. Right. Um, and then the the Democrats that are still trying to court the center, basically it's neoliberalism with a, a veneer of multiculturalism on top. Mm-hmm. That that's also a big, huge chunk of the problem. And that also has to be uh, removed from power. Yeah, I agree. That that the Green New Deal really does have to happen, that we really do have to get off fossil fuels, that, um, yeah, that... The certain sense of yeah. ur- urgency is not a joke. It's not to be toyed with or taken, right. taken lightly. And even this, this idea of removing <clears throat> Republicans from power, in my mind, I'm like, yeah. But then I'm like, wait a minute. You're only removing them from uh, holding office where they can appoint people and, and change laws, but they're still working with way more money than everybody else and insidiously spreading false information and spreading hate right. and, and perpetuating their own fear and and uh, yeah. perpetrator trauma onto the public even when they're not in power. Yeah. So I imagine, I don't know if, if the right people were put in power, if they could curb that somehow. And I think ideas like taking money out of campaigns uh, is, is part of that. But it's, it seems like something we need to address on a much, much deeper level than just whoever's in power right now gets to make the rules. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that, I, that, that's where I am interested in ideas like Buddhist socialism. Like what would – Yeah. Like democratic socialism, Buddhist socialism, like, it, like the way Bernie says it's not me, uh, it's us, right? It's like it has to be an entire movement. Mm-hmm. Because then it's really changing from the hearts out. Right. And, and not some kind of top-down authoritative thing that's going to get rebelled against. We're collectively right. changing our mindset to move right. in a different direction uniformly and in participation and collaboration and cooperation right. instead of this continuous uh, us-and-them mentality, which is just right. digging us a hole. Yeah, it needs to be ground up. It needs to be intersectional. It needs to be understanding that different contexts have different levels of extractivism and different ways that trauma is manifesting so but the overall goal should be that it's ground up um and we're building solidarity with each other and Mm -hmm. then it's through that solidarity then yeah that the deeper level transformation can happen right and so then um yeah the largest so yeah i mean like if 
if we dealt with issues around healthcare, education, housing, um, like class is a big issue. If 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 we could deal with the issue of class, that might go a long way to deactivating a certain amount of European Americans that are identifying as white in a yeah. negative way. Yeah, that makes sense. Right. So it's like it's intersectional to help heal racism we have to heal the issues around class to help heal the issues around class we have to heal the issues around race like it it's it's yeah it's it's interdependent mhm uh maybe to uh, something else about that point um mental health and and education earlier we were talking about mm-hmm. uh the manifestations of uh gun violence and whatnot and i wanted to point out one of the what I, I thought was a solution that, that you presented, uh, I'll read from your paper again. I don't want to spoil it for anybody who's yeah. uh, going to be reading it. But um, you say, uh, mental health and wellness should become the focus of the education process rather than a supplement to it. In addition, religious institutions must be challenged to provide their congregations with contemplative practices that support people to be in touch with the ground of being and to heal from trauma and addiction. I really like that. Yeah. Yeah, it's really, I think, uh, mental health is... And and overall, just just personal and collective wellness is such a a huge part of every aspect of our lives, and and to to build it from the ground up rather than supplementary, try to yeah. put, put band aids on our problems. It's it's gonna I think create right. a whole different right. paradigm for being for our society. Right. And so I think you know we had the separation of church and state for good reasons because there was this fucked up dogmatic Christianity that was doing a lot of stupid shit. So we needed to separate that out. But then what happened is the scientific materialist paradigm took over and that became the dominant view, right? So the goal of life is material consumption. Um, So then in high school... Like, what what is more important to learn when I'm in middle school and high school? How to deal with my emotions, how to deal with trauma, or uh, being aware of amino acid chains in, uh, you know, chemistry and, like, you know, the protein formation of whatever. What's more important for me to know at that point in my life, okay? So we've been dominated by the scientific materialist worldview for so long that we think education should be that that that's the focus is i should be learning chemistry physics and uh high level like calculus in high school instead of learning how to breathe and be in touch with my body and and deal with my anger and like my violent impulses when they come up or um or yeah when we're talking about history that it is this disembodied uh whitewashed version of history it's not this like embodied like what's really going on experience yeah Yeah. so um the dalai lama actually he just um it was out of this research they did at emory university um neuroscientists working with uh monastics and other tibetan yogis like with meditation um so he calls it C, social, emotional, ethical learning. 
and it's basically a curriculum for K through 12 school teachers. It's available online. It's free. It's in 12 different languages, and it's secular. It's not even Buddhist. So you can you can take it up as a secular, non-religious uh, practice, or if you are a religious community or a school or organization, you can integrate it into your religious context. That sounds so cool. C, social, emotional, ethical learning. Yeah. Wow. And so it's a curriculum, an online training that any school teacher can learn how to do. And, and so it has within it somatic trauma therapy as part of uh, the deal, right? Amazing. Uh, another example would be the University of Virginia has this whole contemplative studies program where they basically adopted a whole school district in West Virginia and implemented contemplative practices as part of the curriculum in the schools. Like that's wow. Like it wasn't Buddhist. It wasn't like it's just secular mind, mindfulness or not even. So it's, the Christians are allergic to mindfulness because they think. Yeah. Not all some so they just so they call it attention focusing attention. Okay. Okay. Um, but anyway, the point being that our education system, starting from kindergarten all the way through high school, we should already be teaching mindfulness practice. We should already be teaching at the level that it's appropriate, um, an understanding of what trauma is and how it works, and then. Yeah, practices of how to heal trauma. And then I know the teacher strike here in L.A. that happened, one of their big pushes now is they want to create community schools with wraparound services. Really? Oh. And so the idea is that the school becomes a community center. It's not just for the kids, it's for the parents as well. Wow, I didn't hear that. That's and, cool. And the wraparound services includes mental health. Yeah. So, I'm, so that's, that's kind of the cool. direction I'm talking about is like, it's a working class, uh, labor union. Uh, what if we integrate that with what the Dalai Lama is talking about, that it becomes mainstream, that contemplative practice and working with trauma is how we, like, it's just part of our education system. Yeah. Man, if we can get our shit together, the future is looking bright. <laughs> wow. <laughs> that sounds like such an, an awesome, uh, comprehensive way to to engage in education and, and healing from the ground up. It's so cool, man. <laughs> so the hard part then is, so this gets back to like when we were talking about the beginning a new practice, right? So when I was living in this community with um, like, say I was at this monastery and there was like 20 monks all living together. You're living together as a community, shit comes up and you got to deal with it. Yeah. And so then we had this, practice to deal with it right we're all going through life together as human beings say we're a group of people who our kids are all going to the same school together and we find out in this one family abuse is going on right so how do we as a community take care of that like so yeah that's tricky i'm curious to hear what you're saying <laughs> i'm like getting nervous thinking about oh yeah i gotta we gotta con confront the issue so that's what i'm saying as soon as you as soon as you come back into your body then you're gonna have to deal with your shit right yeah. so yeah. if we as a society start coming back into our body we're gonna have to start dealing with our shit right yeah so we have all these movements like black lives matter me too movement um the whole 
consciousness raising around homophobia and queer. Um, it's like all these areas where extractivism or violence takes place. It's like as a collective now, we can no longer be desensitized to that. Yeah, I, I think uh, the shift is kind of towards radical inclusivity, which I, right. I, I really dig, which I think is part yeah. of what Down, yeah. Down with the Dharma is about too, right? <laughs> and Being more inclusive. Yeah, so I'm interested. I know um, Angela Davis's sister, Fania Davis, and maybe I'm mispronouncing her name, but she's based in the Bay Area, and so she has this whole, uh, it's called transformative justice. Um, so it's, they have, like, as part of the prison abolition movement, there's this idea of restorative justice, and sometimes it's called transformative justice, and the idea is, as a community, you're dealing with the trauma that individuals are acting out with on each other you're creating circles of healing to where that trauma can be dealt with and then there is not the need for the prison like Mm. the prison is there as a backup as a consequence if the person won't open up to the healing process you still have that last measure of containment yeah and incentive incentive um but even yeah, so so we have to have restorative justice or transformative justice as part of our everyday societal experience, as part of the experience of the school, the workplace, the community, the church, the Buddhist temple, the whatever. It it's like Psychotherapy is like I could have something going on and it's I can go talk to some I can go talk to somebody in a separate space. Yeah. This is saying when shit's going on we're no longer turning our heads away from it as a community. That yeah. we're going to deal with it as a community. And it may mean separate spaces for people to be in. There's a need for I understand need for safety or whatever the realities of the situation, but overall what we're saying is whatever the trauma is, we have to embrace it together as a community and we have to heal it as a community. Yeah. So if I'm, uh, I'm, I personally don't have, I took a 12 year monastic detour and I I didn't have any kids (laughs) and my wife and I right now are karma. So far we haven't had kids. Yeah. Um, but I could imagine if I'm a parent, my kids going to school, uh, say he's like, whatever, like an eight-year-old son, and he brings a friend over, and the friend starts telling me that, oh, shit's going on at home. Like, my dad is doing X, Yeah. okay? We need a system in which, as a community, through the school, through the community, we can support that family to deal with that stuff. Yeah, that's that's so tricky. <laughs> yeah, which means it's like it's like like I think that's the thing. It's like for so long we've gone we've gone on imagining like it's not it's not there. It doesn't exist, or we're pretending it doesn't exist, or yeah. Um, so that's another... because also the solution is sometimes you call the police on the person if they're abusive, but then we don't want to get the police involved because sometimes they react differently to different right ethnic groups and. A lot of people don't want to get the police involved, and then they don't want to get involved themselves. And so the traditional means of of acknowledging right. the problem, yeah, are aren't satisfactory. 
Yeah, again, so that's, and I haven't, I haven't had a chance to really understand more about it, but this yeah. whole idea of transformative justice that Fania Davis is doing or this restorative justice movement, like this idea, like that, that is what they're trying to figure out. Like, yeah. how do you not have to have the police? Like, how do you not have to have the prison? Like, how can the school, the, the community center, the church, the whatever, deal with this? I think, so uh, we're, we're kind of shifting paradigms from, like, the, the teacher-student relationship is changing, mm-hmm. and, like, mm-hmm. uh, the Sangha mm-hmm. is the new Buddha, and, mm-hmm. and things like this. And I think as we start to work together more, We'll, we'll stop deferring to authority figures to solve our problems. And yeah. so like you're saying, we can do it within the community rather than, oh, let's, let's get the police involved or some right. other authority figure involved. So I, I do see us moving in a progressive way towards community engagement yeah. as we start to, to realize that authority figures aren't all they are cracked up to be. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah, and like, let's get real. Like, what do we actually need to learn? Like, yeah. when I'm in school, what do I really need to learn? What do I, what is... If I want to become a scientist at some point, yes, I need to study high levels of chemistry. But if you learn to but, deal with your mind <laughs> and your emotions right, right, at the ground level, right. then you're going to absorb all of that information right. way easier. You're going to be right. more in tune with following your heart and get right. going after the fields that you're actually interested in. Right. Your whole life is going to flow more easily. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. And if, if, okay, like I'm, again, I grew up in this Republican family, then I became liberal, and now I'm basically getting into socialism. I'm, like, still a newbie to the thing, but it overall seems to make sense to me. But um, mm-hmm. the Yeah, just this, the, our overall collective approach of what, how we're organizing ourselves and what we're doing. Okay, so we do need a baseline of material security right yeah. people yeah. need food they need clothes they need shelter um they need health care they need transportation um they need art they need culture we need a baseline of material security and stability yeah and that means also we need to have a sustainable relationship with the planet and with nature yep right having said that then I think this is one big contribution that Buddhism and whatever wisdom tradition that has been able to have this experience of this deeper ground of being, that there is a activity that we can engage in as humans that brings about a feeling of contentment and happiness that does not involve consuming more material stuff. Yeah. That, yeah. uh, sensual pleasure is is good to a certain point and then beyond that if it gets into addiction then it's a problem uh, uh material stability and comfort obviously we need to as a species provide ourselves and the world around us material stability and security yeah but then i feel like we need to open up to this deeper ground of being that can provide an experience of contentment and happiness that would then allow us to let go of defining happiness as making the most money, driving the fanciest car, whatever. So I think that's one of the big problems is getting off the hedonic treadmill. Yeah, we don't we don't have a legitimate uh, contemplative ground of being experience in which to channel our energy. And so then 
this the 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 only outlet people see for happiness is consumption of material stuff and so i think that's one reason why we do have this fucked up economic system where jeff bezos has x amount of money right it's i think it's coming from this worldview yeah that that that's what's defining happiness we're all saying that's what my dream is too (laughs) right exactly so we gotta get we gotta get off of that yeah absolutely yeah so so that's why i'm interested in this idea of buddhist socialism that it's because traditionally marxism socialism has focused on the material part of it yeah and there is a certain spiritual component because just the inherent nature of having group solidarity involves an experience of interdependence. So there is a certain letting go of the ego to be part of a bigger deal. Mm-hmm. But I think we need to add in contemplative practice and awareness of trauma and, and an openness, whether you want to put it into a religious lens or a non-religious lens, but some openness to this ground of being, which will allow people to experience contentment and will allow people to release trauma um, which will paradoxically allow greater ease in creating that material stability yeah that makes sense um, I think well something we like we've even acknowledged in this conversation there seems to be a bit of a, a pendulum swinging and a rea- yeah. reactivity and yeah. things go all the way one way and then reacts to the other and I, I feel like uh, this this this, I've said this, on, I think, on another podcast. This shift into this next era is kind of like the Hegelian synthesis of the past paradigms that we've existed in. So, like Marxism, the idea of it is kind of reaction to the Industrial Revolution. There is all this yeah. new material wealth. So, yeah. it's this philosophy that's discussing this new materialist materialism yeah. that's arising. Um, so, I mean, in ancient times, we had far more connection to the spiritual nature and the harmony of, of being. Yeah. And then we got really removed from that with the materialism, industrial revolution, after agriculture. Yeah, we as, so, as European and European-Americans, yeah, yeah. Yes. And, and, then, and then everyone that's been forced under that paradigm since then. Yeah. 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 In one way or, yeah. in one way or yeah. another. Yeah. So it, it seems like now we're we're gr- grappling with uh, the shortcomings of of this new way of being and looking to turn back to ancient wisdom and mm-hmm. and like we're coupling uh, a Buddhist yeah. practices with the somatic psychology. Uh, and it seems like the sh- the paradigm that we're moving into is a synthesis of of the spiritual and the material. Yeah. I, th- yeah. I think I think there's some sec- some some hope for it. Uh, just on NPR yesterday, I was listening. They said a poll they did in 2000. They did it again. Um, many 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 more people who identify as white are aware and acknowledging uh, institutional racism, um, violence yeah. towards people of color, and that's largely because of the internet. And it's more uh, everybody has a voice now, and there's so much more footage. And so, you know, education tends to shake people out of their their yeah. their their hold up ways of being, and so yeah. we're, we're exposed to it more. So yeah. we're open to it, and I think that also connects us and and yeah. lets people see that we're not all so different, and we do need to work together. Yeah, yeah, and I think it's it's like younger people are more open to socialism. Like younger people just are tending to be more inclusive, despite these structural injustice patterns that are still heavy in the society yeah um so yeah there's still society is still a machine that's churning out 
white supremacy, whether you like it or not. Yep. Um, but yeah, there is, I mean, it's this weird thing of like, okay, Obama got to be president, Oprah Winfrey, blah, blah, blah. There's a certain, on one level, a level of consciousness and integration has happened. On another level, it still hasn't happened yet. Like this deeper level still hasn't yeah. happened yet. And so, um, I guess, I don't know, I mean, I think about, like, like one easy answer is to say, oh, well, it's just as young, younger people, younger people get it more because these ideas have been out long enough mm-hmm. uh, that now they're, yeah, but I feel like that's, I'm, I'm a little wary of just saying that, like, I feel like there's got to be some intentional process as well. Um, so I, I go back to the, the Buddha's teachings on the Four Noble Truths. He said, okay, first you've got to get it conceptually, and then you've got to put it into practice. And then the practice actually has to uh, bear bear fruit, like reach fruition, mm-hmm. right? So yeah. So again, with this idea of the education system, conceptual knowledge is, or consciousness raising is one of the big steps. Um, but then there's this deeper level of just practice and work that has to be done. That um, yeah, that we have to get into, and yeah. um, that people might like the idea of transformation, but then when you get to the work of doing it, yeah, it's like whoa, I don't yeah. know. <laughs> yeah, I think well, before I ever like really got into med- meditation, I I heard oh, some people sit down and meditate and they'll mm-hmm. start laughing or they'll start mm-hmm. crying. Yeah. Like, wow, I want to experience that. Yeah. Not really knowing what I was asking for. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, oh, you're having yeah. like these random yeah. emotional reactions because yeah. these deep, deep feelings are welling up from right. deep, deep inside when you finally get quiet. Right. And that shit is not easy. <laughs> like, yeah. 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 When it actually happened, I, I was like, what did I, what did I get myself into? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's scary to, to try to sit with such difficult feelings. And then I think when we talk about issues of social justice, like, so to open up, to the experience of suffering that's happening um yeah it's an embodied experience so on Mm -hmm. on, um a previous podcast that we haven't posted it yet but we interviewed llama rod owens oh cool um so he's saying we were talking about embodiment and we're and and he's saying there's a difference between taking care of your body and being embodied Mm -hmm. that that's two different things um so then yeah the experience of embodied anti-racist transformation or embodied anti-sexism transformation or embodied um anti-homophobic transformation that that involves an experience in your body where you're having to hold a level of intensity and weight in your body that you hadn't had to hold before Mm -hmm. And so then it's like when you say yeah. hold, do you mean experience in the body or hold as in like hold space, like allow it to be? I I feel it as like, yeah, it's a level of density and weight that you have to get in touch with and become comfortable with. Yeah, mm. that it's. um um like the idea of white fragility, right? Yeah. Like you try to talk to somebody 
I mean, I'm white, so it's weird when I say this, but if you, when, if you try to talk to someone who's white about being white, they get all nervous and um, find all different ways of trying to dissociate, basically. Yeah. yeah. So from a Buddhist perspective or a trauma perspective, what's happening is that they're experiencing intense body sensations that they're overwhelmed by, and it's hard for them to be with it. Mm-hmm. And so that's my feeling then when when it's like, getting in touch with the weight of the suffering of racism or sexism or homophobia. It's a, it's an experience in your body of heaviness that you have to get in touch with. And in the beginning, it feels like it's too much. It's going to overwhelm you. It's going to crush you or kill you. Right. Mm -hmm. And so then you want to avoid it. Yeah. Well, my identity is that I'm not racist. I'm not sexist. I'm not homophobic. So if I sit and I think about it and actually some of those sexist, racist thoughts arise. Right. Right. Then the me I thought I was is going to die. Right. Yeah. I feel threatened by my own actual (laughs) implicit bias. Right. Yeah. So one level is I'll have this strong, fucked up, racist thought come out of me. Mm. Right. Or or another experience just is. I'm getting in touch with the suffering of racism that we're experiencing as a society on a collective level, which is an experience of heaviness that I have to be able to be with. So I have to open up. So Thich Nhat Hanh would say you have your individual body and then you have your Sangha body, which means your collective body. Okay. And you have to be in touch with your Sangha body, right? So if you're going to be down... If you're going to be an embodied anti-racist, it means you have to open up to the level of heaviness that people of color are carrying with them all the time. Yeah. Which you're not going to fully experience it because you're not a person of color, but you're yeah. going to you're going to tap into some direct level of it because you're part of that body. We're part of a collective body. So you're going to have to be in touch with a level of heaviness, intensity, and weight that you weren't in touch with before. Mm-hmm. And so there's a, there is this like practice to be able to do that. You can't you can't just go to the gym and automatically lift yeah. that level of weight. You got to go through practice to get to where you have the awareness and equanimity around that level of sensation. And that comes with your personal practice of sitting with your somewhat difficult emotions, and over time yeah. you begin to be more equanimous and more tolerant of those things and accepting and can integrate your own feelings and then you can expand it to the sangha body yeah and that's what i think uh, yeah i think there's this is i think kind of new areas of exploration like um say like the east bay meditation center in the bay area um um i'm terrible with names so i i can't ever i think i think it's andrew yang He's a Buddhist teacher in the East Bay. Um, but anyway, okay, so the point being, it's a transformation process that everyone needs to engage in, and there's stages. So a first stage is you need, um, people of color need their own space separate from white people because just having white people in the room is triggering and traumatizing. Yeah. Doesn't matter who the white person is. They may be the most down anti-racist white person in the world. Doesn't matter. They're walking around with white skin on. They're going to trigger that. Just that is triggering, right? Yeah. So, so people of color need a people of color space where they feel safe, where they can open up to 
the trauma that they're experiencing and work on it. And then white people need a space to be together to open up and deal with the stuff that we have that we need to do with. So just you and me, these two white guys talking, we're doing it right now. Yeah. So <laughs> it just happens we're broadcasting, but this is it, right? Yeah. Um, and then a later stage is for those who are interested, willing, ready, and able, members from uh, both of those groups get together, and then that's the exploratory zone of transformative justice, transformative healing. Mm -hmm. We have people of color and white people in the same space with the intention to heal our collective trauma. Yeah. And that, uh, I think there's experimental pockets of that happening. Um, And so I see that as the ultimate, like, structure or process that needs to happen um, but it's going to be messy and we have to figure out how to do it in such a way that we're not making people who have been traditionally in the target group have to bear disproportionately the amount of emotional work or labor involved to do that transformation process. Yeah. Like, yeah. Uh, so that's, that's, that's something we have to figure out. And I, 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 I'm, I want to figure that out, but I haven't. Yeah, uh, yet been involved in that yet, so I can't I can't speak about. But, totally, but I see that as the process. Yeah, it sounds like a, a long term strategy, and uh, <clears throat> I want it all fixed now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so shit. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah, it's 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 it seems a little frightening to 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 step into murky water. You know, it's yeah. like it's, it's going to be messy. Yeah, um, don't want to hurt anybody. Don't want to get hurt. <laughs> right. Don't want to cause more trauma. Right. Um, or make people, like you said, disproportionately feel responsible. Yeah. Um, which is why it is important for two white presenting individuals like us to talk amongst ourselves to, right. to try to do some of this work for ourselves and and those those communities we might represent. Right. Um, I guess there's a little bit of an overlap with one of the one of the things you mentioned in your paper that they also mentioned in that that NPR thing I heard uh, the other day. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is the idea. Uh, well, one of the things you said is that um, people of color and European-Americans who are ready should engage in rituals in which the European-Americans, on behalf of themselves and their ancestors, apologize to people of color and their ancestors. But only European-Americans who are engaged in serious reparations work should engage in these rituals of apology. Otherwise, the rituals become just a way for European-Americans to appease their guilt without actually changing their exploitive behavior. We might also call that uh, virtue signaling, right? Right. You have yeah. a lot of the politicians pandering, or yeah, or, or people who want to sound good on social media, yeah, by going to a protest or something, yeah. yeah, uh, yeah. So it seems like that that adds uh, some me- more messiness to to this healing work that needs to get done. Yeah. So, uh, so I'm drawing from a variety of sources for that. So one is Thich Nhat Hanh, when he was allowed to go back to Vietnam, did these big rituals, which he called. Um, it's a traditional Buddhist ritual uh, that he was correlating with uh, grand requiem masses that they do in Catholic churches. And, and um, so the, the ritual is a ritual for souls who have died but have kind of got stuck in some weird uh, in-between place. And then this ritual is to help them have a rebirth into a better dimension. Okay. Um, and then... 
in my study at Claremont School of Theology, there's this theologian from Ghana named Emmanuel Larte, and he wrote a book called Post-Colonializing God. And he talked about this ritual that they did in Ghana where descendants of black African slave traders living in Ghana and descendants of slaves living in the Caribbean and the U.S. got together in Ghana to do a ritual where the descendants of the black slave traders apologized to the descendants of the slaves. So it was a ritual, and so from a traditional African perspective, um, the idea is that because if you don't have a good relationship with your ancestors, that's what causes suffering to happen, and that's what causes not like social suffering, natural world suffering, all kinds of suffering. So the idea is if suffering is happening, it means that the relation with the ancestors is, is there's something going on. Yeah. So they were doing these rituals who basically these descendants, it was a perpetrator group apologizing to a victim group on behalf of their ancestors. And it was a victim group receiving the apology of a perpetrator group on behalf of their ancestors. Yeah. So the idea is we're all carrying our ancestors in us. Yep. And we need to, our ans- we have to relate to each other on behalf of our ancestors. Yeah, it seems like a great start. And so then, um, so there's this nun, Sister Kyra Jewell, who, um, she's a, she was an African-American nun with Thich Nhat Hanh while I was a monk. And so she was, she, I was, I was in India at that time when, and when Thich Nhat Hanh was in Vietnam. And so she was with him when he was doing these rituals in Vietnam. And so she was saying, we need to do these rituals in the United States. Yeah. So like going to places where suffering took place, like plantations or uh, places where Native American, like massacres happened. Yeah. Having rituals um, to heal this ancestral suffering. Um, So when Standing Rock was happening, you had um, this guy who was a veteran, there, there was a whole uh, group of veterans that went to Standing Rock to support the movement there. And there was a guy named Wesley Clark, who's like the grandson of General Wesley Clark. And he was part of a regiment that was part of the original military regiments that uh, were involved in massacring Native Americans. Wow. So during the Standing Rock movement, they had a ceremony where this group of veterans who were mainly European-Americans apologized to the Native Americans. So it was basically the same thing, like on behalf of their ancestors, who is the perpetrator group, they're apologizing to the uh, people who are the descendants of the victim group. Yeah. And so then... Uh, Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz talks about this, how she's a Native American scholar who was there when that happened, and she said that this was a very powerful healing moment for everybody involved. Wow. And so it's they were there for the protest, right? So they were fully down, putting their body on the line. Yeah. And then that kind of 
in a sense, was one of the things that qualified them to do that ritual, right? It wasn't oh, like they're just yeah. they showing just up, showing up, and just right. Yeah, they were they were there. Like you said, right. putting their bodies right. on the line. They were down for the cause. They were right, right. They were embodying it, right. And 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 this was a group of indigenous people that were open to and wanting to do that ritual, right? Yeah. So obviously. The, the, the what you don't want to have happen is just a group of white people that want to do this ritual and they they force it on a group of people of color and then like that's yeah. again we're back in the same problem <laughs> yeah. so yeah. but I guess I see that as one possible long term outcome is that at some point we can start doing collective rituals um, where we are reconnecting with our ancestors and healing that healing the ancestral trauma through ritual so um again this idea then that we need to make this process of transformation a collective one and we need to scale it up like it's got to be big it's got to be multifaceted right ground up yeah really well thought out and embodied yeah, yeah, it's a big task, and I'm I'm really grateful for the work that you've put into it so far. It's yeah, it's really uh, it was inspiring to read your paper. I know I, we had touched on it, and you have a video yeah. on on YouTube where you're delivering it that I listened mm-hmm. to. But um, it was really uh, fulfilling for me to finally have the paper in my hands and, and read it. <laughs> yeah, and I know like when I wrote it, it's it's like a very dense paper. It's very. Um, <clears throat> It's heavy and dense. So. It's, it's palatable, too. Like, <laughs> yeah. I, I don't, yeah. I, you know, I have some yeah. grounding in, uh-huh. in Buddhist theory, yeah, yeah. but uh, I don't I don't know that much about racial formation. Yeah. Um, I don't know that much about, uh, mm-hmm. I've, you know, I've been to a, a therapist who we did some somatic practices, but I don't yeah. really know it from the clinical side of it. Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, I, I took my time going through it, but I, I felt yeah. like it was very palatable. I was able to, yeah. to understand it all and, yeah. and it was, it was, it was engaging. So I didn't, I okay, think it was okay. too, too technical. <laughs> okay. Okay. Cause so uh, I guess I'm just saying, I'm glad that we can talk about it in this format. So it gives a way for people, it gives a way for me to express what I'm trying to say in a more accessible way. Yeah. Uh, like I had to do the paper as like a wonky way to fully wrap my head around it through the academic process Mm -hmm. but i feel like there's other ways of expressing this and doing this work yeah uh totally that 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 this this i mean i I think the podcast is a new cultural form that Mm -hmm. uh it, it 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 can be a bridge or it's a way of expressing a truth in it in a in a way that's accessible yeah yeah and it's not a sound bite. It's it's long form, so people get the full. <laughs> right. Yeah. You can, it's a deep dive. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, is there anything else you want to say about the paper before before we kind of um, wrap it up or move on? We got any feedback? Yeah. Um, a little bit. Um, not a lot. I feel like it is so heavy in depth and involved, and it is kind of this crossover of of these different disciplines that don't normally talk to each other so i feel like oh. it's there's just not a forum really for it yet to be discussed like it's kind of uh it's like this intersectional space that hasn't yet developed a, a collective community space where i would be talking about it right yeah yeah 
Yeah. So yeah. I guess either Buddhist circles or in uh, racially conscious circles. It's, it's, right, 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 right. Yeah. <laughs> it's a little bit exclusionary for either. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of, it's like you got to, yeah, yeah, you got to yeah. get in depth into it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that we could talk about it. This is yeah. cool. Yeah. Uh, if people wanted to to read it, it's on Kalfu Journal. Yeah, you can go to, if you just Google the dependent origination of whiteness. Um, yeah, if you, if you, if you're in school and you have access to a library, you know, you can get to the journal that way. Um, or if you just Google the paper I have, like, on my Academia webpage, it's there as a PDF. So people academia.edu is yeah. the website where mm-hmm. scholars post their, their work. Yeah, so, so um, I want to support the journal. So if there's a way you can go directly to the journal or if you want to contribute to the journal, you should access it that way. But yeah. um, if for whatever reason you can't afford that, then yeah if you it's it's on my academia page as a it's they are free as a pdf yeah oh cool yeah um if if people who are not involved in buddhism or are not involved in social justice right now mm-hmm. wanted to get involved do you have any uh starting or intermediate tips for how people can can get involved no. with either um yeah as far as buddhism you know this is the thing, like, Buddhism has become the upper middle way consumer capitalism deal, right? Yeah. So, uh, um, yeah, the the best way would be go to your local Buddhist temple, right? <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah. and there's different temples that focus on different things. So if you're into meditation, then you got to go to certain ones that are into meditation, right? But, like, say here in L.A., there's tons of temples like Thai, Sri Lankan, and they'll usually have like one day of the week where there's a meditation class, you know, that where you can go for that, learn how to meditate. Um, if you want to go deep dive into meditation boot camp and you have the luxury of being able to take 10 days 10 off, days. <laughs> you can do the, <laughs> you can do the Goenka of Apasana and yeah. that's free. Yeah. But that yeah. is like a boot camp. Yeah, and if you haven't processed your own trauma, it might It'll be, be re-traumatizing. <laughs> yeah, for, yeah, for some, yeah. I've heard, I've had some people uh, tell me that they've had reactions. Uh-huh. So yeah, 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 I think the general rule is like if you have some really intense stuff yeah. to deal with, deal with it before you go into seclusion for ten days. Yeah, but I've done two of these myself, and I I yeah. I think they're great, and I, yeah. I found a tremendous benefit from them. Yeah, and then another again, okay, so then another would be the Thich Nhat Han community that they have um, local groups all over the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's considered like a local sangha. So they, they meet in somebody's house or in a church or somewhere. And it's just a group that gets together once a week to oh, cool. practice meditation and, uh, um, yeah, read some of Thich Nhat Hanh's teachings and discuss them. And there are some that are just POC groups. You can find them. Um, but, again, they tend to be more rare. Uh so, um, if you're a person of color, you may be one of the only people of color there, or, um, or you might be with some Asian folks, and it, depending on the Asian folks that are involved, they may or may not be uh, 
engaged in issues of social justice and anti-racism or mm-hmm. not. It depends. Buddhism is yeah. so vast. There, <laughs> yeah. yeah, there's some people who yeah. practice it ritualistically mm-hmm. and just it's all the mm-hmm. cultural trappings and they're mm-hmm. not really into the philosophy. Mm-hmm. And then other people who have completely removed the, the cultural trappings and are far more into a secular approach to yeah. to the philosophy and using the pragmatic tools that it, that yeah. it, that it, it offers. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I think that was a little bit tricky for me at first too, yeah. na- navigating the different Buddhist circles and finding yeah. what works for me and what I'm interested in. Yeah. Um, but with a little bit of legwork and a little bit of research on, on the mm-hmm. computer or whatnot, I think there are so many different groups to get involved with. And now I know I, we're very fortunate here in Los Angeles, it's a hugely populous area. Yeah. And there's a lot of diversity, uh, but for people in more secluded areas, uh, I would yeah. definitely say there's more online groups these days. Uh, you can hmm. meet with teachers face to face over Skype and and meditate with groups, even in a, yeah. even an online forum. It's been interesting to see that yeah. that new medium emerge for for yeah. for uh, contemplative groups. Yeah, and that's my my co-host Nick and I were interested in um, a Buddhist care and counseling worker cooperative. Oh, cool! Uh, that could be working with people in person as well as online. And the idea is that it's like, it's a cooperative and it's like, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of it like the gym, like you have a membership at LA fitness and then, uh, so then that you can go, you, that would, you could have a free sitting group and then maybe like a once a week counseling session. And then, um, like once a year, like a retreat kind of thing. And, uh, um, but this, again, the idea of scaling the thing up, I want to make a living, but I'm not trying to be like, there's a lot of Buddhism and mindfulness out there where it costs too much money. It's like prohibitively expensive. So the, the model of the school, the church, or some kind of cooperative system in which you can like, yeah, you you can gain access to this and it doesn't cost a lot of money. That's, uh, yeah, trying. I'm trying to figure that out. <laughs> yeah, that's great. That's great. Yeah, yeah. I yeah, I if I'm still around in Southern California uh, and you guys are doing mm-hmm. it down here, I'd I'd love to participate in some way. Yeah, sure. Uh, I'm graduating next year, so mm-hmm. I'm trying to branch out and see what I'm going to be doing afterwards. Like <laughs> set myself up for success to, to keep it moving. Yeah. yeah and, and so, I, yeah, yeah. Like I think these fundamental structures of school, church, um, health, health center, mm-hmm. we got to figure out how to make contemplative practice become just woven into that fundamental infrastructure of the society. Um, and yeah, so it should be, supporting diversity right so if if there's a buddhist version of it that's doing a good job that should be supported if there's a secular version that's doing a good job of it that should be supported yeah uh one of the things we didn't mention is those uh 10-day goenka retreats are free yeah because if you find value they uh, they encourage you to donate and so um one of the the reasons I think you're doing this, uh, and why yeah. I think it will continue to proliferate, is because when people engage with the contemplative practice, they see immediate and long term benefits from that, right. and they want to continue it. They want to contribute to it, perpetuate it, share it with the people they care about, and the greater yeah. communities. So, 
again, uh, I'm really hopeful for the future as, I, yeah. as I'm seeing contemplative practices come more and more into the into the fr- forefront of yeah. our culture through Buddhism and the mindfulness craze, which, you know, there's some debate yeah. about it being commodified, but ultimately yeah. more people are meditating. That's kind of cool, right? Yeah. <laughs> and then yeah. yoga's blowing up. And yeah. um, so I, I, I'm, I'm really hopeful for, for the future of, of contemplative practice being integrated into the wellness and, uh, yeah. and mental and emotional health of the populace. Yeah, and so I think that's, yeah, like the opposite of extractivism is regeneration. Yeah, I like that. And regeneration is like an experience of diversity and abundance. So like the idea of like um, say for example farming, like uh, instead of extracting from the earth you have a regenerative relationship with the earth in which you're wanting to increase the fertility of the soil yeah instead of decrease it and as a byproduct you get food to eat yep <laughs> so, <laughs> so then this idea of contemplative practice opening up to this ground of being that we're trying to open up to an experience of regeneration in which we're supporting each other and uh yeah, so then it's it's like it becomes like accessible and like inclusive as opposed to exclusive and inaccessible. Yeah. yeah. And then we get to reap the rewards of deeper fulfillment, connecti- right. connectivity to each other and our and right. to ourselves and Yeah. Yeah, you get to to reap a whole bunch of good fruits and veggies from Yeah, exactly. From that exactly. kind of connection. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. 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 I love it. Oh, super cool. All right, is there anything else you want to share before we uh we wind this down. No, I think uh, we covered all the bases. Sweet, sweet. Yeah. So uh, I'm. I like to end with a, a couple of curious questions. The name of yes, my sir. podcast is A Flare for the Curious. Yes, sir. Um, so, like your podcast, it's got uh, some double meanings to it. The word yeah. "curious" can be inquisitive, or yeah. it can also be a little bit strange. Um, so I'll just ask you like three simple questions. You can answer any way you like, or pass. Okay. Uh, so. Um, what is something that you are curious to learn more about or have been interested in lately? It could be completely unrelated to all that we've been talking about. If you watched a cool documentary or read a right. cool book, something you're curious uh, about these days. Uh, I'm getting back into golf. Golf? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Nurture your body. Keep it moving, right? <laughs> yeah. And one I'm, I'm kind of mixed about it because like, you think golf, you think Trump, you think white supremacy or whatever, right? Yeah, I mean, you so, could grow a lot of so. food on that golf course. <laughs> right. So I don't know. Long term, I don't know if it's... But um, but yeah, like, if you play on a public course, it's pretty accessible. Like, yeah. like for 12 bucks, you can play, like, yeah. So, Interesting. Um, I used to play when I was growing up, and then I stopped, and then now I'm back into it again, and... So, yeah, there is this whole mind-body connection thing going on that, uh, so it's for exercise, but it's also like, it's like a practice as well. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I wouldn't have guessed. That's cool. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's the fun of asking these random questions. I'm starting to think that maybe I should start the right. uh, conversations with these right. random questions because I get right. like yeah, answer, yeah, yeah, answers yeah. I would never. Yeah, have. yeah. But yeah, it's this weird. It does bring up this like, oh, should I say it or not? Because it's so, <laughs> so white to say I'm in the. Yeah. But then now. Yeah, well, the, these courses I'm playing at, like, it, it's mostly Asian people playing. 
So I don't know. I'm like here. I am trying to justify my golf. <laughs> yeah, a lot comes up. Yeah, a lot to work on. Can we sit with these difficult yeah. feelings? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Cool. I like it. Um, the other one is going to be our other definition of curious. Something yeah. strange or curious. Yeah. yeah. So, um, have you ever had a curious or mystical or unexplainable experience? And how is the how did that change your life or your view on anything? Yeah. Yeah. Um. So, like, after I had been meditating for a while, I got to a place. This is when I was, like, a monk, and I was, like, sitting, like, four times a day, an hour a day. And so then um, I I would get to a point where basically my thoughts would would just chill out, right? And so then I would just be in these spaces of silence. And then, so then I could feel, like, the movement of my mind before the thought became language. Mm-hmm. So it was just like I could feel this movement happening like from this ground and then a thought would happen, right? So one day I was sitting and I could feel like, oh, there's this movement, something's about to happen and then there was a noise that happened outside. Mm-hmm. I can't even remember what the noise was, but it, it was like, exactly that <laughs> like like the you were so, tapped into the ground of phenomenon right and not yeah. just internal right yeah so the <laughs> distinction between inside and outside was like not uh that distinction was not there yeah 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 and so that that kind of general experience sometimes i was you know i mean young talked about it as like synchronicities but like mm-hmm. like where you feel like something's about to happen and then it happens or yeah yeah yeah. 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 So I feel like that. Uh, I have this bell that I use for meditation that I had for a long time since I was a monk. And then I just lost it recently. And then I just started this meditation group. And then I was thinking, oh, maybe somebody in the song will bring a bell. And like two days later, some guy brought a bell. Yeah. Was, <laughs> <laughs> like, and the, yeah, I'm not talking like. You could psychic powers is like a whole side side trip that you can get caught into and yeah and that's like a waste of time or whatever. So I don't, and I don't even think of this as like a psychic power. It's no? just more if you're in the present moment and you're in touch with more subtle levels of vibration, then you can just feel things as they're coming in the manifestation. Uh, yeah, I I'm right there with you in that it's not. Uh, a special phenomenon but yeah. because the ordinary person's existence is at such a gross level yeah. we're so uh, estranged from yeah. the subtleties of yeah. things like this it becomes uh, an apparent superpower or psychic phenomenon yeah. quote unquote yeah um, yeah yeah so yeah I, I have these synchronicities appear too and and mm-hmm. it's it's really it's it's a trip for me i i tend to just take it as uh Maybe I'm on the right track when the synchronicities appear, but I'm curious, like how how did that affect yeah. your uh, perception of how to be in the world, or, or did yeah. it did it have any impact on, on on you other than like oh that's cool? Well, it just made me feel happy, and then like it's just <laughs> yeah. like oh like this feeling of regeneration mm. and like this idea of like the ground of being, this soil of consciousness, that it's like an interdependent ground of being that is regenerative 
right? Yeah. Like um, there was a need and the system met the need. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Right. The system spontaneously responded to the need without even having to like ask for it. It just happened. Yeah. yeah. Cool. <laughs> yeah. Meditation's a trip, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Wow. All right. Great. Good answer. Last cool. question. Last question. Okay. Uh, 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 can you name a time that you experienced profound beauty? Something tremendously beautiful. Um, yeah. Mother Mira, my first guru who I ever got in touch with, uh, she's like, when I'm in the room with her, I can look at her for a certain amount of time. And then it's like, it's so beautiful that it's too intense and I have to turn away. Wow. And it's not like beautiful, like fashion model beautiful. It's like, yeah, that's, yeah. I mean, on one level, yeah, she's beautiful, but like she, it's on another level. Again, it's not a sexual thing. It's like, um, it's this feeling there's so much beauty and richness there. It's like it's like eating chocolate mousse. You can only eat so mm, much at one time. Yeah. You can't you can't just like wolf the whole thing down. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I think I know what you're talking about. So I I, I saw you at the event uh, yeah. with Mother Mira. I went for uh, Dar- for Darshan and mm. yeah, we were in a big empty yeah. room. Yeah. And unlike uh, other uh, mm-hmm. holy figures that come through, she did no decoration, yeah. no wall hangings behind her, no mm-hmm. ohm symbols. Yeah. In the lobby, there was a small place where some people were selling books and pictures, yeah. but very small scale compared to other events I've been to. And she's just sitting at the front of the room, as you said, yeah. and everybody's in silence. And yeah, there's this tremendous beauty emanating. I, I, I might liken it to being inside of the most magnificent cathedral. Yeah. But it's all coming from one person in the center of the room. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. 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 That's, yeah. I, I, I get what you're saying by that. It's, it's, yeah. pretty, it's pretty tremendous. And I remember once um, I went with a friend of mine and her two kids to see Amachi. And our mm-hmm. kids were like five and eight. And like when Amachi came out, the girl was like, she's so beautiful she's so beautiful (laughs) and she was like calling her brother like look look like yeah yeah uh yeah so speaking of regeneration yeah mother mira's coming october 10 here in la she'll be here like nice uh so that'll be after we we've posted this but yeah um, (laughs) that's the other thing there's gurus mother mira amachi that come to the U.S. and anybody can go see them and it's free and uh, yeah that there's these beings are here and usually if it's the deep level real thing uh, it's free yeah yeah I mean there's a way that they support themselves but but what they offer usually is or at least some part of it is free yeah 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 I like that because they're tapped into regeneration, they can do it. Yeah. 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 It's a, it's a tricky one. <laughs> Transmuting <laughs> yeah. it. Yeah. I'm, I'm working on manifesting <laughs> abundance so I can just give it out freely as much as uh, I'm able. Yeah. It's, it's it's a tricky dance we're doing here on this yeah. big blue rock. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 Wow. Cool. Well, thank you so much for uh, taking yeah. the time to sit down and chat yeah. with me. This has been uh, thoroughly enjoyable. Yeah, me. Thank you me for too. writing your paper. Um, yeah. yeah, people can check it out uh, uh, in the places that we mentioned: academia.edu and at uh, the Cal Food Journal of Comparative and Relational Ethnic Studies. 
Um, yeah, thank you so much. Cool. That's thank great. you too. All yeah. right, we're going to wrap it up here. Thanks everybody for listening. Talk to you later. All right, thanks for listening all the way to the end of this chat with John Fries. Links to John's article, The Dependent Origination of Whiteness, and the Cal Food Journal of Comparative and Relational Ethnic Studies, as well as others, uh, are in the notes of this show and available at aflareforthecurious.com. Please take a second to subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast. Send me your feedback directly at aflareforthecurious at gmail.com or on social media. I'd love to hear what you thought about some of our topics and points. I know I'm still learning a lot, uh, and I have a long way to go with even basic vocabulary, but I'm so glad I was able to have this conversation about race and justice and be able to share it with all of you. The work is not easy, but if we're willing to take it on, the tools for navigating challenging experiences are definitely there. I know for me, um, Buddhist and other wisdom teachings have certainly given me the ability to engage with difficult emotions and remain present when I'd rather avoid the issue. I hope you all found some value in this discussion today. If you did uh, and would like to support us by more than just rating, reviewing, and sharing, your monetary support is also appreciated, and you can find links to contribute in the notes or by clicking on the support tab at aflareforthecurious.com. There you can donate through PayPal, Cash App, Venmo, Zelle, and Patreon. Um, I'm going to try to get some merch going pretty soon uh, to have something concrete to offer you all. Uh, Let me know if there's something specific that you would like to see. Lastly, I'll say that if you are listening to this in real time over the winter of 2019-20, I'm on break from school until February and would love to collaborate during this time. If you'd like to be on an episode, have your music featured, or participate in some other way, uh, please do reach out. Okay, you beautiful people. I do love you all. I hope you're staying well and taking good care of yourselves and each other. Stay curious. Never stop questioning everything. And keep your hearts open. Peace.